0: Hello, welcome to Laminiforms Radio. My name is Ian Corey, and I am the songwriter in the band LambdaForms. Today I am joined by the writer Langdon Hickman. Langdon has spent the last year working on a massive retrospective review of the legendary Canadian progressive rock band Rush. Over five pieces, Langdon has analyzed all 20 of Rush's studio albums, charting their changes in sound and lyrical style while pointing to the band's wide array of musical and literary influences. All in tribute to the band's drummer and lyricist, Neil Peart, who passed away one year ago this month. I was delighted to have Langdon on to talk about this project, and Rush in general. One quick technical note. I experimented with a new way of recording the podcast for this episode, and as a result, my end of the conversation was not recorded with my usual equipment. I apologize in advance for the drop in fidelity, but thankfully Langdon's voice came through loud and clear. Thank you for bearing with me, and thank you for listening. I do kinda of wanna, before we get into the meat of the conversation, um, which is gonna be about Rush, of course, I do sorta of wanna give people an overview into who you are and how you became, how you got into writing. I just wanna sort of hear from your perspective because I've, I've been familiar with your work for a while now. I yeah. you know, com- commissioned some of your stuff at Invisible Oranges back when I used to work there, but I don't really know too much about how you started writing to begin with, so.
1: So the shortest boring version, Is the first time I started writing, I was about six years old and I would just hold my my parents worked in advertising. So we had reams and reams of like branded pads of paper, unbranded pads of paper, rolls of paper for printers that we didn't own and all all kinds of stuff. There's more paper and pens than you could do anything with we also had tons of books and tons of films and stuff like that so i would just it was late 80s early 90s i'd keep myself busy by just you know if i wasn't watching something or reading something i would just start you know writing my own stuff just horrible writing that only a six-year-old could make uh the first completed short story i did was a piece of fan fiction for uh the sega genesis game rocket knight adventures which in Europe was released, I think, as Spark Knight, um, where you play as an armadillo who has a jetpack and a knight suit of armor, and you fight against a pig uh, who's also making the Death Star. I had them fight for one trillion years. <laughs> That's and a single battle that lasted one trillion years. So my general aesthetic has stayed the same for the past uh, 25 years or so. But yeah, as I got older, pretty much the only things I wanted to be were a paleontologist, an inventor or an author. And eventually I found out the paleontologists have to know about biology. So that was out. And inventors actually have to do work. And that was gone. Um, you, You can't just make shit up. You have to actually then make real things that people want. And I wanted to make like a bomb that kills you if you go into the ocean. (laughs) <laughs> Which apparently isn't isn't a product that people want they don't want this thing so that left you can apparently write about that though and that's fine and people like that one so so i'd write a whole bunch as as like a teenager going into um like high school and stuff wrote a ton of poetry when i was in bands i did the lyrics even when i was the drummer um i would write a bunch of short stories i wrote i called them Novels, but I was like literally like eleven or twelve, so they were like forty pages long. but you know when you're sure. twelve and you write, write something that's forty pages long it feels feels big. I took a bunch of creative writing classes in tail end of high school that's when I started submitting a lot of poetry and short fiction to different like magazines and stuff. And then I went to college and I studied a whole bunch of stuff. I took after my dad there, where I just kept changing my major um and it took me an eternity to graduate but I did Wind up getting a BFA in creative writing and had been churning out short stories and stuff then got published in a couple different fiction venues, which eventually like I I started writing about like writing nonfiction stuff and creative nonfiction because of some classes that I took there. Where For a while, I was like, I'm not interested in that at all. Like for me, nonfiction was like philosophy, which I loved, but I definitely didn't have the knack for writing. Or like big meaty pieces of nonfiction, like there's a book called "Late Victorian Holocausts," which is about the horrors of the um, Victorian Empire of Britain that also like helped politically radicalize me. But as you know, those kinds of like big meaty things are what I associated. So I was like, I that's not my. um." Mm -hmm. I did have a couple blogs where I did um, writing about bands, specifically writing through their discography, where I just listened to all of. Just because I had the same uh, the same pet peeves that I think a lot of people who read a lot of music and nonfiction writing have, which is I didn't like scores on records. They felt lazy and like they focused on the wrong parts of records. Like if you had to rate the Shag's philosophy of the world, you'd be wrong if you rated it like above a four. It's a terrible record, but it's also like a mandatory listen for equally obvious reasons and you don't get that information out of a number you get that information from talking about the record but not that kind of thing and pitchfork was really big in the mid two thousand i mean it's technically still big but i don't think anyone who is serious really pays much attention to it thank god yeah it doesn't have um, the same kind of cultural cachet
0: not. these days i think like it felt like yeah 2000s into the early half of this decade but by now i think everyone has sort of like after basically after condon asked bought it no one takes it as seriously
1: and I, i had some petty grievances there where i don't mind like creative writing intermingling with critical work i think that's actually more critics should do that because we a lot of times get this false this false presentation that there is a separation from the observing experiencing self and the uh the critical self and i don't i don't think those actually firmly separate in a way that we can ethically like pres- I mean, obviously it's not a big ethical question no one's gonna die but given that critics are professional opinion havers like it's not a lot to ask that you also like be a little bit more rigorous since we're already getting paid to just have opinions mm-hmm. um had had some problems there and it, it just also seemed more creatively interesting to me to be like oh how does this interface within a body of work rather than just because ultimately if you take a record all by its lonesome at some point you're just you're saying a fancy version of i liked it or like i didn't like it but that, that it was a really gimmicky blog that i did where um it, for a while it was me and a bunch of my friends and we'd all talk about the records And we so we did like angra in order because you get into heavy metal and you're getting other people into heavy metal you have to hit power metal they're not ready they're not ready for the gross death metal yet they're they're not they're weak and they need they need to be brought in and angra to be fair slaps
0: yeah they got some tunes
1: yeah, I think we eventually lost, uh, or me, I lost my roommates on this project when I made us listen to one band for every continent in the world. So there's, of course, uh, we did all of Europe, which uh, ruled until it didn't because they broke up, and then when they got back together, they turned into a Nickelback-style hard rock band, Not that sucked ass. Um, mm. 80s Europe slaps, obviously. Then we did um, Asia. And what I found out is that I hate the band Asia. I, I, I hate them. I love <laughs> progressive rock, obviously. But oh my God, I hate Asia. I, I was ready to go into it and be surprised because like I remember as a teen, I thought before I knew what progressive rock was because you'll remember this because we came, we were roughly the same age. There's a long period where like Prague was very much a dirty word in serious music criticism. It was considered like just goofy ass music. Even with bands like Opeth breaking big in the late 90s and early 2000s, people were talking about them as heavy metal, black metal and death metal. But they weren't talking about like, oh, they love Genesis, like more than they love death metal, like elements of even like metal magazines talking about what makes Morbid Angel interesting. No one was talking about how they've had weird prog like it deliberately laced into it there. It's no, it was. And especially if you grew up in an area that had like a lot of punks and a lot of hardcore kids and a lot of alternative kids, like the fact that the Smashing Pumpkins are huge fans of progressive rock, like all of the members of them, but especially Billy Corgan. Spin wasn't really talking about that. NME wasn't really talking about that. You know, they were talking about how they were pinging off of like pavement and grunge bands and stuff. And but no one was talking about like, why does through the eyes of ruby sound so big and lush and it's because they wanted to make a prog rock song so then i hear from someone you should check out yes and i'm like owner of a lonely heart yes and they're like no yeah the short version is we 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 listened to asia and apparently despite the fact that asia is full of prog guys it sucks i hate it did all that but yeah and for a while i actually thought that i wasn't going to really make it as a writer as i think happens to a lot of people because i i didn't go the music journalism route and I know that I didn't I knew that I didn't want to and I still don't think of myself as as a journalist I think of myself as as a critic and a writer but following a beat and covering a beat just doesn't appeal to me it's it's a real thing and and no begrudging people who do it and then eventually um getting up to when we first ran into each other I, I eventually um I'm also a big old lefty um and I've internalized a lot of elements of that that I think other I think other people should, duh. um, otherwise I wouldn't have done it. But it leads to things like I'm not bothered by my work being completely free. Um, I'm not bothered by not making money from it. I sort of accepted that. And I think that if that lowers a barrier for it, that people that I think that's ultimately better than if it'd be like, I have a lot of opinions there. That's its own thing. But as a result, I just started posting this stuff out it'll it'll reach who it reaches, and enough people that i that I respect and that I never thought would give a shit about anything I had to say care about my thoughts, so you know it'll it'll reach you know artists that I respect or it'll reach people in these worlds that I respect, even if normal people don't and then yeah at at some point, you being one of those people running invisible oranges reached out to me, and I was like, Oh my God, I'm actually gonna what the fuck um and like. <laughs> Jeff at Trouble, I just emailed him shortly after um, Trump got elected, because I, I, like a lot of people, I was pissed off. And I was just like, I've got to just start doing something. And he was like, fuck Mm it. You write write for me now. It literally went from me thinking that, like, none of this is ever going to go anywhere. It's just going to be, I'm going to have a day job, and this is going to be a thing that I do offhanded to, um, yeah, to it becoming a thing in the past couple of years.
0: Yeah, there's a lot to that you brought up there that I think actually is very pertinent to our conversation tonight because you you know mentioned that you're a drummer and that you were a drummer that was writing lyrics, and that feels particularly appropriate. Yeah. So I guess like the other big puzzle piece that we have to put into place before we really get into the meat of things here is how you got into Rush, because as it happens, the day that we're recording is the year anniversary of Neil Peart's death at the age of 67 I believe and Neil Peart Peart obviously is the was the drummer of Rush one of the biggest progressive rock bands of all time probably the biggest one in North America broadly speaking yeah how did you get into Rush so I actually
1: I actually hated Rush when I was growing up which is uh really funny to me looking back largely because again time and era like I was born in the late '80s, so came. I was raised in the very late '80s, into the into the '90s, and so there was a lot of alternative radio. Um, got turned onto that stuff really young. Was very lucky to get really into like Nirvana and stuff before Kurt Cobain passed away. Uh, barely, like barely. I was, I was, I think, literally five when he died. But it was my whole family got into them because my dad was a musician too. I, it's like music all through the house, and my dad played a lot of alternative radio so did cousins so did um and also a lot of classic rock because my dad was born in 1950 so for him that was just the music that he grew up with and you know played you know jackson five records and um elvis records and then pink floyd and my dad not only loved jan Hammer. jan Hammer played at his second wedding as like a wedding musician in the 80s what? which i thought are in this yeah like fusion era jan Hammer's just chilling at my dad's wedding and i'm like i don't it's, it, that sounds fake and he's like no no and i asked my family and they're like that's real and i'm like that's wow. bizarre so basically just listen to music all the time and as a result occasionally on classic rock radio because i didn't their other songs are much too long they'd play something like closer to the heart and i was like this is fucking annoying like this sucks um i still hate that song so much but yeah they they play stuff like that and i was like yeah i like spirit of radio that's that's a pretty good song but aside from that i i think these are actually just really annoying pieces of music like i didn't like the lyrics i didn't like which felt a bit too like really corny the um the the melodies felt way too on the nose and i was like this this is like children's music so i go on and i think i think that they're terrible and then again i get in i get into prog rock and explicitly in middle going into high school because i loved like i found mr bungle when i was like 11 and they just like blew the my brain out of the back of my skull they were like system of down on steroids and then you know i loved I loved tool then uh, you know we we didn't know certain things now we do um, <laughs> now we do now change. we do life changes um, it, it's it's like when it's 2002 and someone's like have you heard of Burzum versus in 2021 where someone goes have you heard of Burzum um very different experiences but loved opeth obviously pink floyd and stuff and i was talking about that on a forum and someone's like oh you're talking about progressive rock and i was like progressive what and they were like yeah and then that's when the yes thing happened and i happened to find a copy of of yes songs the the triple lp live version like the full accordion one like on vinyl Mm -hmm. in my basement shrink wrapped there were two of them that were shrink wrapped my parents just never opened it or played it for me when i was younger Wow! so fell in deep there and as i was looking into that stuff because that that just blew open a gate for me i was like this is the most magical music in the world still that progressive rock and death metal are like the two Pinnacles for me. Like I, I can't imagine liking anything more. I love plenty of other stuff, but those are just my my favorite. Rush kept coming up, and I'm like, the band that sucks? Uh, no, what? No. And people are like, no, you like long songs, right? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah, I love long songs. Yeah, Opeth and Close to the Edge. Mmm, love me some Close to the Edge. They're like, yeah, check out Twenty One Twelve, and I check it out, and I'm like, this kind of sucks though. Like it's it's fine, and then it gets really boring. And then it ends, and I think they're libertarians, and I don't like that. Like, I, I'm i even 14 or 15, and I'm like, I, I think they have some pretty whack political opinions. I like the Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and System of a Down and Rage Against the Machine. These guys seem like dorks. I bet I could fight them uh, and win. So I go on, and I, I just sort of write them off for a while. Then I get into high school, and I'm chatting with my friend Blaze, um, who's like the guy who got me into Rush. And... His whole family loved Rush. He loved Rush. And I'm talking to him about him. And I'm clowning on him because, you know, whatever. And he's like, no, you're listening. You're not listening to the right shit. And I'm like, oh. And he plays me Subdivisions. Yes. And yes, this that, is exactly right. <laughs> that, that song blows, again, like uh, to reuse the euphemism, blows the brain out of the back of my skull. I'm, because by that point, i have been drumming for about like, six or seven years so i'm following like oh that's a really interesting pattern there and then i'm i the part where he starts trading off between the uh the ride and the hi-hat and i'm like air drumming i'm like how in the world is like did he overdub these drums and he's like no and i'm like what the that opened the floodgates. He starts playing me a couple more songs. I wind up immediately going out to Best Buy, and I nab the, the longest concert DVD they had. So I was really into concert DVDs at the time. I watched Pink Floyd live at Pompeii, and like everyone, I was like, everyone should make concert films. And it turns out pretty much only Pink Floyd should make concert films, but whatever. But yeah, I, I nabbed that because it had the most songs on it. Um, And I go home and I watch the entirety of it. Basically, I'm overnight converted to a Rush fan. Yeah, because I had that I had that different entry point. Like I I wind up showing them to other people and other people wind up being like, yeah. And I looked them up and I found out moving pictures is their best one. So that's the one I picked up. I didn't really have that entry point. I mean, I love moving pictures, obviously, but it's it was more the stuff from like signals and Grace Under Pressure. And some of the stuff from Test for Echo and Counterparts and stuff like that, that's the stuff that really grabbed me first. I'm an obsessive, like um, a lot of metal and prog listeners and a lot of like music types. So I eventually went and bought all 19 at the time of their studio albums or 18 at the time uh, because Snakes and Arrows hadn't come out yet. And so like I had all of them when Snakes and Arrows came out and I was the first one that I bought on release day. Yeah. So I just like, f- from there it was just like this, this lifelong thing from that point forward.
0: Yeah. It's funny. Cause like my introduction is not entirely dissimilar where it's like, I heard the popular moving pictures stuff first. Well, that's no, you know, th- th- the problem with this band is that their most popular material is not necessarily the one that, is poppiest you know yeah i heard like yeah closer to the heart and tom sawyer and yyz all of the, like the big hits like the canonical rush yeah. series, you know from a dj at the summer camp that i would go to like it was like an arts summer camp and so they had like a radio station and the guy who ran the radio station had like every single Rush album in this like giant binder that he would bring. And I would just sort of flip through it and be amazed at one that they had that many CDs because I was just getting into bands that had only been around for like a decade at that point in my life. And to see like, holy shit, this band has been around for 40 years and they're still putting out music. And then I was also blown away by the fact that he had all of them, that there were none of them that he didn't want to own, you know, that it was like a yeah. completest mentality. And it wasn't until like I actually had to learn Rush songs in college that I actually kind of like got into it because I was like so just like extremity focused for so long that like a bunch of nice Canadian boys playing prog rock was like not going to cut it for me early on. <laughs> but then when I actually had to learn how to play YYZ at college, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> like This is really, really hard. And by that point, i had already gotten into Dream Theater and all of the bands that I could start to see like, oh, these guys building on Rush so it would behoove me to go back and figure out what the deal is but I didn't really take that seriously until Neil Peart passed away and then I just went through their entire discography in like a month and just mainlined it I was like I need to know what i've been missing what i what did i not understand about this band and so that was like last year it was a big project but i came out the other side being like oh shit if someone had shown me signals first this all could have been avoided (laughs) you know
1: yeah it's it's really mystifying to me and that that, that's one of the big one of the big impetuses behind the project for me was there seems to be this like hidden history within a history of the band that even if you talk to rush fans. Depending on the which one you talk to, you'll find ones that are like massive, adoring fans of Signals, which is within Rush fandom, sometimes propped up as their best record above 2112 and moving pictures and stuff. But then you have these other really exciting pockets. And this is also one of the things that I like specifically about looking at the whole discography of the band. You find things like the track The Necromancer off of uh, Caress Steel. Which, which Dream Theater covered live, and they actually, on one of the bootleg DVDs from Itza Jam Records, their official bootleg stuff, uh, they have their cover of it. It absolutely is just Dream Theater in the early 70s. And then you have things like Power Windows, which is, like, the best cybernetic fusion of synth-pop and prog-rock that, like, I've ever heard. And you have Counterparts, which is their take on... Uh, Pearl Jammer, Soundgarden-ish grunge sound, which makes sense given that Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and them openly cited that Rush was this huge influence on them. And mm. which you can heal, uh, hear all over Kim Thayil and uh, Chris Cornell's playing. Yeah, it's it, it was that similar kind of thing where these these gaps of like Bad Motor Fingers, one of my favorite records of all time, I think it stands like toe-to-toe with any of the great 70s rock records, which would only make Boomers mad. but you know, it everyone else I think has accepted this. But it was like, how come it sounds as fucked up as it does? I know they cite the Beatles, but there's something else here finding out about the Rush thing. I was like, okay, that that explains that. How come I love all these bits about Smashing Pumpkins that I love? Part of it comes from there. I got into Dream Theater before I got into Rush, and same kind of thing. Meanwhile, you know, all that time that I'd spent listening to, to you know, Tom Sawyer and YYZ and Red Barchetta fantastic songs like not knocking them whatsoever but there was this like whole other world to the band that I just didn't know was there
0: yeah I I I feel like that's one of the things that I really like about your project uh for context if you went through following Peart's death you've been doing this year-long project of writing about every single Rush record in groups of four so it's covering their entire discography but in a structured way like it's not just individual album reviews. And you're right, like, once you start kind of chunking it a bit and thinking of it in these distinct eras, you can see, like, all these multiple paths of influence, both into the band and out of the band, in a way that is harder to pick apart if you're just thinking of them in the, like, greatest hits,
1: what's played on the radio kind of way. It's a format, so this part isn't specifically about the band, but it does become about it. It's a format that I specifically like and have liked for a long time. Like one of the first projects that I pitched to you specifically was doing a similar thing for blind guardian that for any of the number of reasons that any writer or editor will know instinctively, like the, the project just didn't come together Happens sometimes, Mm -hmm. but I like that specifically for the part that you brought up of these, these vectors into and out of bands, and where is the band an intersection? Where is it a starting point? Where is it an ending point? What alternative histories do they tie into, or do they draw from that maybe aren't apparent on the surface? That's one thing that I always want to see more of in writing, but I think, unfortunately, due to not not just slamming on listicles again because that can be boring, but obviously they're part of the problem. There's a lot of shapes about writing about music. They don't really lean towards that kind of depth or meatiness. This is probably going to sound ludicrous, but I at least try to think about this as a, again, a professional opinion haver. I try to think like, if what I'm writing, I should think of as a book. And if it were a book, what would I be proud to have said that I wrote down and had published as a book versus what would I be like? Please don't read it. I did it for a check. Rush thankfully offers us this really inventive structure that they themselves even acknowledged in later interviews. Cause I, I, I read so many goddamn interviews for this thing. Thank God rush fans are obsessive. And so like, there are multiple websites where it's like, do you want to hear every stage goof that Getty Lee ever made between the years of 1979 and 1993? And it's like, what? And they're like, yeah, we have 2100 audio files some are two seconds long some are two minutes long oh on this day he forgot the lyrics to this song on this day (laughs) he flubbed a bass fill and it's like i didn't listen to all of them but like having that available is like just this massive benefit uh yeah they, they mentioned in later interviews that they notice an inadvertent pattern that they built into their uh their discography which was after every fourth Studio record they dropped a live record totally coincidental like you know during the course of their career they'd have record labels being like well maybe a live record would sell well because this tour was well attended and but then it wouldn't come together or they'd record some shows but then they'd go into the studio and like i think there was supposed to be a live record between a farewell to kings and hemispheres but they went right into the studio because they were so excited and just cut hemispheres instead all these all these things that like It initially was a complete fluke, but then at a certain point in their career, they were like, oh, that actually works well as a decent as a decent structure. And if you use that to chunk their discography, it ends at these really exciting points. So like the first period goes from their debut right up to 2112, which is, you know, a fantastic miniature history all on its own. Then the next one goes from A Farewell to Kings up to moving pictures which again that you couldn't ask for a better structure as if you were a novelist writing about a band it does all this stuff they even had a bit that after their fourth set of four their final set of four they had a live record after each of the four albums and then ended it was too perfect of a structure i'm mostly surprised that my editor was like yes i see this huge ass outline do it um (laughs) i'm not sure if he knew how big it was going to be initially i feel like he must have known because he and i've worked together for a while and i have a history of the uh, big ass projects are being like i just handed you an eight thousand word piece have fun editor <laughs>
0: <laughs> to be fair i have had fun um, when i was your editor so that does bring me to how did you when did you decide to pitch this project when did you start actually like breaking it down what you wanted to talk about for each of it. Like what were the early stages and planning stages of this rush project?
1: I consider myself a novelist first and then, you know, it's like a nonfiction or like journalistic or critical writer second. Like those are things that I love doing. And I've read a lot of, I've read a lot of philosophy books and stuff like that. And I have a lot of thoughts about how good, good uh, criticism should be structured. But in my head, I'm a novelist who fell sideways into this kind of thing. So I think for structure in in those kinds of terms of like, how can I build out structure that, that, that would be satisfactory if this happened to be a novel? Because I think that that ports over very well to just long form writing in general. I want it to be a eulogy for him, but I don't want a boring ass eulogy. That's just like, he's nice. We miss him because those are cheap and they don't necessarily mean anything. And even if they come from the heart, they don't, communicate the thing from the heart and so it's like what would communicate that and the thing i came up with was critically engaging with his life's work which is the band rush um and i was like i as a musician you can't really uh and this is where i'm glad that i like came into this from wanting to be an author and from playing music on my own and stuff like that because you get at least the perspective that you there's very little greater compliment than someone taking very seriously this thing that you devoted your life to creating, especially if if the creation of it isn't some flippant thing if it if it really is this raw display of you, then I'm like okay that that feels satisfactory and then I started building out like how am I going to cover twenty studio albums um I just I happen to know the factoid about the the rate of their um their live records, so I pitched that. To Jeff and you know he's like well give me give me the first part of it and we'll, we'll see from there and so I get to writing and that question of what you said of like what to include versus what not to include those are things that I tend to leave up to the moment of writing because at least for me if I if I overly outline to a bullet point in that direction I can accidentally sterilize my own writing and I, I can't get it out some some fluke in how my brain's wired or something so i would just listen to the records repeatedly and try to get this like the sense of like a feeling and then each chunk was more meant to be like a spirited discussion of these internal shapes or internal thoughts and after reading a bunch of interviews after listening to the record after listening to things they cited as influences just sort of trying to live within the mental world of it with part of the idea being that each record as I wrote about it, wouldn't just be writing about that record. It would be writing about that record with the weight of the knowledge of the previous records and how might they have reacted against them with them. Um, How might they have drawn on their own history, like resynthesized older ideas that maybe they'd set aside because of that. I was like, okay, the first part doesn't have to be too complex. This is, these are the beginning stages. Like in a fiction novel, it's the part where Frodo is going around talking to a bunch of hobbits, and you're just learning about Hobbiton. I don't have to worry about Shelob or anything yet, or like Ents. Like, I I don't have to answer what is an Ent when he's just chilling. Um, But as that went on, that's also what made the later later portions of it take longer. Because one, obviously, they're getting interviewed a lot more. So it's doing a lot more research reading. But then also, the notion of how does this arrive... From through and toward all of these other works gets a lot more complicated. The more pieces you have on the board, I was I was incredibly blessed that because again it wound up being five parts that took an entire year to make. And uh, I I'm not sure if anyone listening to this is is an editor for a site that writes about music. But going I'm going to write five things and it will take me 12 months is normally not something you say yes to. Um, <laughs> So I I was insanely blessed that Jeff was like, keep the quality up and keep them coming. Get them to me as quick as you can, but like, just make them good. Because like, there is the last piece of it took about three months to put together.
0: And that's the one that as of recording has not yet been published, but
1: you just submitted Uh, it a few days ago, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, um, I edited that one down to about like eight or 9000 words. And that covers from vapor trails, which is their first record that they made after getting back together after Neil Peart had a horrible family tragedy that you can look up if you want. It's really, really heartbreaking from that up to Clockwork Oranges. Clockwork, Clockwork Oranges. Clockwork Angels, yeah. <laughs> what
0: am I doing? <laughs> I think you may have gotten some wires crossed with Invisible Oranges there.
1: Yeah. E- each each one became its own little structural project because, say, the way that I talk about Rush, Fly By Night, Caressive Steel, and 2112 as a set, like how do they interact with one another? How how does one emerge from the previous and flow into the next? That obviously requires a very different shape than how do signals grace under pressure power windows and hold your fire interact as a set and that that was extremely creatively energizing for me especially again th- this is made during the midst of coronavirus where in america we have over three hundred thousand dead and that number is probably going to get a good bit higher given how bad the vaccine rollout has been rising fascism through the world so this became like an anchor for me that like as all this like fucking nightmare shit was happening outside i could just pour myself into research and crafting this thing
0: let's start then with that first group of four rush fly by night caress of steel and 2112 what are your what were your basic basic approaches to covering those records? Like, what was your main guiding thesis, and what did you come away with from those four?
1: My, I think the thing that I was going into was something that's come to mind for me a lot, specifically when thinking about progressive rock bands. So this happened a lot with with Yes and with Genesis, where we have this notion that they turned pop at some point in the eighties. And the more that I've run into this stuff the the less that makes any sense to me, because like, yes, started by covering Donovan. Like that was one of the first things they did in, in the mid to late sixties. They always had pop and psychedelic pop and sunshine pop and California pop and all those like branches of, of pop music from the late sixties that no serious music critic would ever turn their nose up at. Like no one's going to say the Mamas and in the pop. I mean, the Mamas and the papas, maybe. But they, again, that's autobiographical information, not necessarily musical stuff. But yeah, so th- they'd always had these pop bits. And like Genesis started by covering pop. And they, it, that put a seed in my head of a lot of times we critically or socially begin a, man- a band's history at the moment that we begin liking them, but not at the be- the moment that their influences begin. Mm-hmm. And this winds mm-hmm. up setting us on really bad courses for interpreting their work. So th- th- that was that was the initial thing. And I didn't listen to their debut record in a while, just because, like, I-, I think for a lot of people, if you're a Rush fan, you tend to gravitate to to other stuff in their discography, to-, to be fair. But this forced me to go back and sit with, I mean, obviously everyone knows Working Man, but sitting with, like, In the Mood and, like, Finding My Way and all, all of these other tracks that, like, I I hadn't really spent a lot of time with. So, like, one seeing that bit of how much of The Who was in their early sound, how much Black Sabbath was in their sound, like all of these components that especially would come to bear late in their career because I'm, I'm super familiar with Vapor Trails Forward because that was like the era that I like got into the band. And I mm. always thought it was weird how fans of them are like, oh, that's when they turned all Boomer and stuff. And it's like, that's been music that they've loved and have had in their DNA the entire time. I was like, OK, I know that I'm going to need this for building blocks later. And I know that on paper, Fly By Night is their first jaunt with Prague because you have Tor and the Snow Dog being their first epic of like eight plus minutes. But you also have like the really sprightly, very yes influence stuff like the title track. So obviously Neil Peart debuts on Fly By Night after John Rutsey was the drummer for um their debut. And you have him doing these like really sprightly, like alacritous, like drum fills that, you know, you clearly would hear in Dream Theater later. And at least for my own taste, Fly by Night was never really my bag of tea that much. That was one of the last ones I picked up. In high school, uh pretty much all of the like smart artsy punk kids were also into Fly by Night, which is weird in retrospect, but it it's true. But I thought they were annoying. So I was like, no, I don't like that record. It's bad. <laughs> um in the way that only a teen can. So it was interesting to see specifically the chunks there of them exploring progressive ideas but at that point still in these much more digestible uh song lengths Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which i think again that was this was a building block for a thesis that i knew was going to come down the line of their later period stuff where they're where some rush fans turn their nose up at them and be like oh i only like hemispheres where it has you know a 20 minute long song and it's like they literally have always compacted these ideas into small spaces like literally their entire band like it was the the narrowest window where they made lengthy tracks that's what
0: separates rush from other of the other big progressive rock bands for me is that they were able to condense all of those incredibly complicated and elaborative ideas into these like really tight classic rock formats You know, like, yeah, that's what I feel like made them work as a band during that period. You know, there's I I'm going to be referencing Beyond the Lighted Stage, the documentary a lot, because that's sort of the the primary document for a lot of the historical stuff. For me, at least. It's a damn good documentary, too. Quite good. Yeah. And the fact that they were like on tour with Kiss, who you'd think would be like about as far in terms of mood and presentation from Rush as you can get. And they were winning over Kiss fans, mostly in like the middle part of America, the sort of like Ohio and the Midwest and those sort of chunks that are generally overlooked, <laughs> we could say. But they were like, no, we're just going to tour those places a ton and pick up a lot of fans there playing songs like Working Man. And they're able to present these like very complicated, like highfalutin prog ideas, but in this really like muscular, down to earth, condensed form. And I think that's like a huge part of their success in this period.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, we see that a lot in, um, in prog bands in general, actually from, from America and Canada, which is that they drew as much from the American hard rock tradition as they did. And the, the British, uh, the British, damn, the British blues rock. There we go. The British blues rock tradition as, as much as from like, yes, and King Crimson and stuff like that, which they they cited as being these massive, massive fans. In a way that I think gets written out of their later stuff, like the band is one of the first ones that will mention to people like, hey, we are a hard rock band just as much as all these other things. Again, this notion that fans or critics who feel they know the band better than the artist making it decide, well, no, no, actually, I like you best as this thing. So when you're doing those other things, I think that that you're ignoring your true self. When in reality, what they're doing is ignoring the part that you personally like. But then, yeah, there there is a chunk within specifically Crust of Steel that I think is a massively underrated record on a critical end. Because I think, again, this is where we have the split modes of criticism. There's one that justifies itself on how well executed the ideas are on a record. And even at that point, it's hard to say that Bastille Day or the necromancer are bad songs i think that's just ludicrous if you're like no they suck ass be like fuck you man that's that's not correct but there's the other end that judges based on like imaginative capacity and what's Mm -hmm. funny is we get these standards flipped a lot like when we're talking about certain punk bands or post-punk bands or industrial bands or like bedroom pop bands or lo-fi bands you know all this kind of stuff all of a sudden the fact that they don't execute an idea all that well doesn't matter. And in fact can contribute to it. We're like, no, it's, it's the energy. But then you have rush attempt a sidelong piece of the fountain of lamneth. And it's like, fuck you for trying. And it's like, that, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. Even, even though there are, there are bits of that song that I think are not, uh, I think I'm going bald is bad. <laughs> it's bad. It's a bad piece of music, but, um, but a lot more of it works. Than than you'd think.
0: Yeah, it it still feels like they're figuring it out somewhat in this period and, like, justifiably so. They're a pretty young band working at a very fast pace. And it's interesting that I feel like a lot of people, and you point this out in your pieces, that like there's a, a lot of people that point to 2112 as being like the quote unquote true debut or like the re debut of the band. And to me, it feels like actually it's the finished product of the thing that they were getting to in fly by night and caressive steel it's sort of like we've now arrived at like the end of this journey of being this version of rush do you feel like that's a reasonable way to frame it
1: yeah i mean i think this is actually something that rush benefits from in the same way that in the death metal and punk world we're very well familiar with of like if you follow the demos of a band up to their debut which is not terribly uncommon in the extreme music and underground music world where you know you might hear about a band before they have a record deal and then you can mark this evolution and no one in their right mind in those worlds thinks that the band starts at their debut record you're like no i've i've heard all these demos i know how they've evolved and i treasure that like it, it's not even just that i know it it's that that's as valuable to me as a studio statement it's their mixtape era, basically. Yeah, they're emerging from the primordial soup of we want to sound like our influences. To like, well, what at the end of the day, how do we assemble all of that? And uh, eventually, getting to the same uncomfortable conclusion, which is you never actually fully free yourself from from your influences. You can add more influences, but you never you never get rid of them, and you just you learn to live with that. And like one of the things that I tried to bring up a lot as well. As our presented history versus, I think, a real history of the band, when talking about 2112, people seem to only care about Side One. And it's like, it's a great piece of music. I'm not trying to knock it. But like, for me, especially as years have gone on, I find more excitement from like Twilight Zone or Tears or these other things that are like, like Side B deep cuts.
0: Yeah, to me, Something for Nothing is like the song of that record. That's where they really dial it all in, even though the lyrics I don't entirely vibe with, but that's a... Yeah. (laughs)
1: We'll get to that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And yeah, so I I think in those moments that we actually see a flash of the rush that they would be literally until the end of their career in a way that we actually don't on the, the title track itself. And I think that's, again people mistaking the part that they find most exciting. Um, we actually we have a parallel to this in in Mastodon. Because again, I think these these are lessons that resonate throughout whatever band you're looking at. But you maybe looking at a specific band can can train us to look in these ways. Where for Mastodon, we, we pitched ourselves all like as a collective, this notion of they are x y and z thing and then for a number of records now they've been an inventive and fun progressive hard rock band and people are like no they're bad now and i'm like i guarantee you if emperor of sand came out in 2004 people would have loved it but we've decided for some reason that crack the sky was so good that unless they literally give us another one they're bad and that's that's stupid like that's right that's stupid The funny thing about that is
0: that there's a similarly sized cohort of people that have that same feeling, but about remission, you know, where it's like, that's the only Mastodon record. So it's like the cycle just repeats itself over and over again, which, excuse me, I think we'll also see in the course of Russia's career. So as we move from chunk one to chunk two and get into the, probably the most canonically Beloved Rush records, the Farewell to Kings, Hemispheres, Permanent Waves, and Moving Pictures. Uh, we should probably now talk about the lyrical hangup and Neil <laughs> Peart's lyrical early lyrical style. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, there is this kind of conception of Rush as like the libertarian prog rock band, and that comes from this early period and then this second period specifically in the way that they openly cite Ayn Rand multiple times and like draw yeah. from Ayn Rand's writing. And yeah, they, they don't hide it. Um, it's, uh, it's not great. I will say, no. and it, especially on the title track of 2112. It's like this Ayn Randian parable about like why rock and roll can't exist under communism, space communism, you know, and <laughs> it's, it's ludicrous and it sucks. But I think in context of their whole career, I get why they were interested in those ideas. Because like if you're a, like precocious, like smarter than average person like Geert clearly was and have dedicated yourself to being really, really good at something the way that he clearly did, you're probably going to have some hangups about.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we get that with, with the short story Harrison Bergeron by I, th- I think that's it um it, That's it, it, yeah Yeah, it, it's the exact same thing of um and i think that story actually serves as a good like lens to understand where peart was coming from and this is this is coming from i'm a big old marxist so i don't like ayn rand she can rot in hell um hate her ideas but we can still understand why they appealed to people especially in a window of time um mm-hmm. and it's Ultimately, they were teens coming up in the midst of the Cold War, like they founded the band as teenagers in the late 60s. They're getting into their 70s now. So you need to think people like my parents age Um, and Fine as well. Yeah. And so they're coming of age specifically in in the 50s, in the 60s. Neil Peart said he spent some time in London in the 60s um, as a gigging musician. And obviously came up, they, they all came up from suburbia as well. That, that's another important fact, I think. And like we can't subtract their class or um, racial components from this either. Is that when you grow up as a middle class, suburban, Cold War era youth in the midst of the Cold War, one, you're fed a huge amount of propaganda about communism and about socialism in general. And I don't think you can necessarily strongly punish someone for not seeing completely through that. Because that ignores just how strong propaganda machines are. Like, we can't be like, yeah, they have a real and powerful propaganda machine, but also all of their thoughts are flimsy and you should immediately see through them. That doesn't that doesn't really work. Then the secondary thing of that profound sense of alienation that they felt, or at least that Neil Peart felt from his peers and wanting, like, I want to strive for something and I want to break free from these these chains that's where we get a lot of boomer and gen x writing in terms of fiction about the psychic death of uh of the suburb and how it feels like that's where creative people go to die that's where creative people are punished this is where hippie movements are born in part um because there's unfortunately a huge tie between hippies and libertarian movements not so much liberatory movements like more obsessed with, I want to fuck anyone that I want to and do a bunch of drugs. I don't care about, say, the in- the incarceration rates of people of color or um the uh, communities that are bereft of food that the Black Panthers are seeing to with food kitchens.
0: Right. This is how you get hippies becoming yuppies in the 80s once the money starts rolling in.
1: Exactly. And so I don't think it's unfair that especially someone who's reading a lot. And we also have to keep in mind at that point, Ayn Rand was very new. She started publishing and being picked up really in the 40s into 50s. And so if you're in a certain, like, hip and smart crowd, it's not uncommon to run into her works at that at that point in time. This isn't to validate her ideas, which are bad, but, um. and then you also have to add into the fact that they're also young men trying to figure out the world. Because mm-hmm. I brought this up a lot about that first chunk. That entire span, from their debut to 2112, is two years and four months. Right, they're moving at an
0: outrageous pace in the early part of their career.
1: Like, it's a ludicrous amount of productivity. And you have as well, I try to focus on the ages of them as people, that they are still in their mid-20s. I think they turned 30 at like 1981, which is like at the release of Moving Pictures. So Mm -hmm. we're talking, and this is, we're, we're both in our 30s, like, they're very, very young. They're still piecing together the world in a lot of ways. And even though you have, like, your the ideology that you likely will carry with you beginning to form, then it's also not uncommon to have to go, like, I had some bad thoughts as a teenager or, like, 20-something, and I should get rid of those because they're bad. And we see that winnowing process begin. Like, Farewell to Kings has, obviously, Closer to the Heart, which is I think his first stab at solving a lot of the problems of Ayn Rand's ideology of, if you have like a Galt's Gulch scenario who fixes the road, like who fixes the toilet. And so Mm -hmm. eventually being like, Oh, well, all of these things are fruitful and there is nothing, there's nothing bad about being a working class person, but you know, I still think capitalism is pretty okay. Um, Which is again, a bad opinion, but he's, he's getting there. And so like, we have a bunch of other um i mean you have average like libertarian stuff like a farewell to kings the title track which again i think is slept this is this is the exciting part for me is hearing like a farewell to kings and madrigal which are very like jethro tullish or genesis ish like they remind Mm -hmm. me a lot of steve hackett's like very pastoral guitar um and i'm like no one talks about this we all talk about xanadu which is I'm going to say it, not that great of a song. It goes on for three minutes too long, and I don't need to hear the exact same verse literally two times in a row. Don't need that.
0: Yeah, not my favorite of the long tracks by them, for
1: sure. Um, But then they hit us with Cygnus X1, which is a masterpiece of heavy metal. Like, we would not have heavy metal as we know it without that. Because, like, Metallica cites it. Voivod cites it. Like, literally... Every single band that's ever been influential on in heavy metal loves that one song. We even have, that's, that's one of the favorite songs of uh, Tim Comerford of um, Rage Against the Machine.
0: Low key. One of the stars of that Rush documentary is how fucking jazzed he is to talk about Rush. <laughs> it's like that, so, so cute.
1: <laughs> that made me so happy because like I, I was, I went in there with this worried, like, you know, when, when you're like a young lefty prog rock fan, there's, there's always that worry about like, Dorks and then obviously like right wing dorks. Um, and Rage Against the Machine are very much not right wing dorks, and so that I would that was very validating for me.
0: Yeah, this is also where they go like musically. It should be stated this is where they go quote unquote full prog. Like they the technicality kind of goes to the roof. You can tell that they've like now toured enough where they have that sort of psychic psychic connection as musicians, where they can just come up with incredibly complex shit, and all three of them immediately understand where to take it as like a group and it, it just goes into like totally batshit insane territory on hemispheres hemispheres is like exhausting to listen to to be quite honest like it's really really good
1: but it's like 35 minutes long too that's the part like you get to the end and you're like holy fuck and you look down you're like that is less time than one episode of law and order <laughs> <laughs> What's funny is the thing that you said is definitely the affect they gave. And, like, we wouldn't get Dream Theater if there wasn't that feeling when you listen to Rush of, like, they can just do this. You could also tell at that point that they were getting, like, they were clearly very excited about this stuff. So, fun historical fact. The only three songs that were meant for Hemispheres, at least initially, were the title track, um, which is the tail end of Cygnus Cygnus X1. Um, the Trees and La Villa Strangiato. And so they cut all of that and it winds up being 30 minutes and they just decide, we have more time, let's cut a track. And they write and record circumstances in like two days at the very end of the sessions. And mm-hmm. I think this is a pivotal moment in their history that we don't, that we should talk about more when discussing Rush because Permanent Waves sounds more like a child of just that one song than anything else on that record.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really smart. Sometimes the last song that you write on a record is actually the soft launch of the next record. Yeah. And their ability to like start refining more and more, like, okay, we've gone as far as we can into literally into black holes with this prog stuff. What if we start to scale back a bit? What if we start to narrow and focus that energy into something? maybe more conventionally song-oriented, but also start to bring in all these other newer influences that'll start showing up in the next two records
1: too. It's it's really fascinating because like any, any Marxist will know and love the term dialectics. Um, and without boring too many people with like uh, my dry Marxist-Leninist, like here's historical materialist dialectics, um, a short version of that thought is twining two thoughts together. It's not just going this is true, but what if it was not true? Um, it's like a complex conversational approach to knowledge. And the best example of that is literally the scientific method. Like the scientific method was literally founded by a bunch of philosophers who read Hegel, um, who came up with dialectics because they liked dialectics that much. Like that, that's a short version of it, but literally it gave birth to the scientific method. So that notion of you have a hypothesis And you test it in various ways and you maybe have a counter hypothesis and all this stuff. Anyway, bring that up because that model, I think it is great for understanding stuff in general. But for Russian specific, it works ludicrously well that any given record is birthed directly from a previous record or a previous like four album era and then also directly creates the next work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So th- that's again the, the part that's important to keep in mind that, like through Crust of Steel 2112, A Farewell to Kings, and now Hemispheres, they've maintained these tighter, compact songs where they jam all these ideas in. It reads more like the longer form songs where one, they had to check the box because you can't love prog rock and not give yourself the big epic, but two, more like big testing grounds. Than these these other these other chunks. I mean, even and it's funny is you look at a farewell to kings and like Xanadu's the longest track at 10 minutes, but Cygnus X1, this one that feels massive and like like ludicrously epic, seven and a half minutes. Like you wouldn't as a metal fan, you literally wouldn't even like blink at that. That's like it's a normal song. Right. Yeah. But yeah, so we got circumstances, which is three and a half minutes full of like just Stupid time changes. Like this is very dream theater kind of kind of shit where it's they're like, it's in five now, now it's in three. Now it's in four, now it's in seven, now it's in five again. Now it's in uh like fifteen, sixteen for but for one bar. This goofy shit. And like Getty's shrieking on top of it, and like the way they're placing the pulse, it still feels like you know, like you could like you could drive to it or get in a fist fight. Um, but it's like just goofy proggy. And what's funny is they actually start. They started the process of making permanent waves by going, OK, that was just a little fun thing. Now let's get back to the real work. Let's write a sidelong epic about Gawain and the Green Knight. Obviously, that's not on the album because they got part of the way through it and they were like, yeah, but I like jamming, though. That, that, that was tight. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, we really love uh, rocking.
0: <laughs> right. It's almost like a return to their roots with all the experiences that they've learned up until that point.
1: Yeah. And what's funny is we still get these like really fascinating. I read the record more as like four movements and the sides being mirrors of each other. It's a really fascinatingly structured record. In fact, here's my hot take. I think permanent waves is a better record in every facet than moving pictures. Um, I think it's better as an album. It handles the structure of an album more the side structures The I think the songs are better. So you get these poppier, but still still very prog rock songs opening it Uh, if you get spirit of radio and free will back to back and spirit of radio is still one of their best singles they ever made free will is really annoying but um i i hate that song but whatever it's if if i could ignore the words entirely it would be great
0: if someone reads start gets the wrong lesson (laughs) and that's that's free will
1: There's also a little bit of, like, the way that the vocal melody follows the guitar melody exactly, including its rhythm. I'm like, eh, that's annoying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, on the same
0: album, they've got, like, Jacob's Ladder and Natural Science, you know. Exactly.
1: So then we get Jacob's Ladder as the next one, which is this lengthy epic about weather. And it's very atmospheric and feels like almost like contemporary King Crimson. Then the second side opens with this two-song set of entre-new and different strings, which are profoundly beautiful.
0: Like, the best, like, softer Rush stuff, like, ever, in my opinion.
1: Again, as a Rush fan, I'm I'm just flabbergasted that no one seems to talk about these things, because I love them. And then, yeah, it closes out with Natural Sciences, which, again... Dream Theater, Dream Theater had covered it, um, which makes perfect sense when you listen to it. Because like, yeah, there are... I mean that
0: one seven four riff in it is like, I feel like you could extrapolate all of modern prog metal from just that one moment. The na 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 na, like that is just that's everyone. Yeah.
1: Everyone does that riff now, you know. And it's like, so you have this perfect record. Both sides are mirrors to each other. You get a little tight song, two song set, and then one epic. And the epics are thoughtful they're proggy they're they're still lengthy and they have multiple parts listed but yeah it's there's something about that that i think even the band were like i don't and they've said this obviously they were like we didn't know what else to do in that form but i think this can be paired against as as successful as those songs are they have these other these other bits that are that are just as fascinating and just as great and i i cover this in in the piece as well on the tour for permanent waves if you look at that set list one if you're a prog rush fan you're gonna just fucking wet yourself because they played the entirety of 2112 they played the entirety of cygnus x1 like like both parts like the journey the discovery and uh and hemispheres so a 30 minute epic there you get both epics from permanent waves just like it's with these macro they played xanadu but it's also hard to imagine that that didn't also make them go like i don't i don't want to do this ever again of course yeah like it's only natural that like you'd burn yourself out on doing
0: that which leads us to moving pictures which is i mean we should also mention by this point they're starting to take in influences from like the new wave scene and from the punk scene and beginning to do like reggae parts and stuff like that
1: they they cited specifically like the clash helped open the doors for reggae for non-reggae listeners because the clash famously spent a lot of time in in jamaica and kingston in specific that's part of the reason why the clash doing reggae feels a lot more natural because they literally were cutting it with reggae musicians and like were soaking Mm -hmm. it up like where it was and they helped bring that into the broader punk world and obviously you had this is not to knock the reggae musicians that were active within britain because jamaica is technically a british it's controlled by britain which not many people know but yeah so we had reggae records in britain prior to this and ska records and stuff like that but yeah it starts getting bigger they cited specifically bands like ultravox which if you listen to rush and then ultravox back to back you're not going to necessarily go like rush loves this band but they did they loved oingo boingo which that's just correct that's a correct opinion the police i think you also
0: mentioned in your yeah. uh, in piece of the police come up a lot and what i love is that when rush do the reggae parts it's not like they do it authentically they actually like get it wrong to the point where it becomes something new and like less appropriative
1: yeah it's at least it, that's my opinion I I feel the same way and what's funny is um I actually feel this the least about their first stab at it the the closing outro on um on Spirit of Radio which feels like so cartoonish that it's all it is borderline racist how poorly they do it. I'm like guys please never but yeah they seem to get the note and so like the closing track on Moving Pictures with Vital Signs where you even have them saying like I and I which it's a big thing in, in Rasta, uh, meaning we. I shouldn't have to explain that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, they, they have their approach to ska and reggae there that feels, it feels like Rush is playing reggae, not, and it feels like they know that, that they're like, this is yeah. not authentic reggae. This is a progressive rock band who loves New Wave and is toying with these things playing reggae, which I agree with your read, like it feels less like they're, because the main understanding, at least I have, of appropriation is a sense of taking ownership and erasing the real legacies behind certain kinds of work and certain kinds of, like, aesthetic and artistic creations. But that, especially because they're doing this in the early 80s. So, like, at that point, it's not hard. Like, Bob Marley is is producing work. I think, actually, he'd passed by that point. But
0: Yeah, this is already the point where Eric Clapton is going to number one with terrible covers of Bar- bob marley's work you know like reggae is at this point yeah. starting to be like a
1: a mainstream flavor in pop music at least in america but yeah you get on moving pictures i mean it, everyone's talked about those songs to death it's actually one of the reasons why i spent so little time with it because i was like here's i you can't add to that discussion i do think the camera eye gets overlooked a lot especially i was like that's where you start getting his palette changing like because Pierre is no longer interested in nine rand he's inter interested in john uh los pasos oh it is john dos Passos. okay yeah um who's like a, an avant-garde novelist um from the 50s who who released like a really fascinating work the usa trilogy which fun factoid also became like the aesthetic inspiration for stand on zanzibar which is a, like a fucking great sci-fi novel Yeah, so like um he he starts drawing from like avant-garde novelists who are writing about specifically in like a cut-up style, um, based on newspapers and reporting. That's why like the the different portions of camera eye are about different cities, um and Mm. about we start seeing a like a lyrical turn in him from I'm the idealistic young man who does whatever the fuck I want Does Ayn Rand, which we get a little bit of with Tom Sawyer and um, Red Barchetta, but it starts shifting a little bit to wanting to witness the world and wanting to engage with the world. And some of that, some of that young man's angst that, we, we have to call a spade a spade. There's a lot of being a young white man and young cishet white man and all this where you get a level of angst that if you are self-critical, you get older and you realize is like a ludicrous illusion that is just toxic and destructive.
0: It's the interesting thing is I feel like he's the, the further into that body of work we get. The more that you see that the through line is a degree of anti authoritarianism and anti conformity, that yeah. early on in his career, because of that same bias that you're talking about, he falls victim to a lot of. I mean, like I did this too. I had an Ayn Rand, a brief, very brief Ayn Rand phase. Because as an artist, you're kind of like, oh, the idea that I can just do whatever I want and no one should tell me how to make my art is extremely appealing. But at this point, Russia been around the world, they're extremely successful. They're now writing songs about what it means to live in the media sphere, like a song like Limelight or even Spirit of the Radio, I think does this very, very well. And that grants you a sense of perspective that undercuts the legitimacy of this like me-centric Ayn Randian bullshit worldview.
1: Yeah. And that that definitely starts coming to bear in certain ways. And to be fair to the other guys of the band getty is later said that the primary appeal for for frying ran to them was a little bit was more captured in anthem and the fountainhead so Mm -hmm. uh quick which which makes sense if you know those books and the band so the short version of the fountainhead is that's the specific one about artists should make art exactly how they want it and if someone tries to change it they'd be better served destroying their own art so that this perverted version never gets seen rather than let it change. Which
0: Which in the context of the Fountainhead involves blowing up the projects, which is fucking crazy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's it. So obviously like the Ayn Rand is, 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 uh, crazy idiot and there's a lot of problems with that but you can see the appeal as a young artist being like and you even get that in the punk world of like no we're going to be as whatever as we want to so no one even has serious qualms with that notion it's just how it's carried out and when it is carried out um, that that become primary political issues for obvious reasons and then Anthem is more just like creativity is good and people will try to shut down creativity which is True, but more often true of fascist states than of um, socialist ones. But that that's whatever. It's the Cold War. You're not going to learn that the CIA are the real bad guys of the 20th century until later. That's just no one's going to just say that. Um, it, well, actually, people did. And then they got assassinated by the CIA. Yeah. So you wind up getting at least the the beginning inklings of wanting to think and see from other perspectives and i think this really only starts coming to bear on the camera eye and um and vital signs the rest of the songs i think are still rather self-involved in a specific way i mean you have a song about because that's sort of the infant the infantilism of libertarianism in a certain way and that kind of anti-authoritarianism that as much as red barchetta is about fuck ecological regulations and emissions regulations it's also about i want to drive me car (laughs) <laughs> right right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which which is fair i mean like that, that's that and with tom sawyer they're putting it in the mouth of literally an image of a child which i don't think is necessarily the desired thought that uh pie Dubois and neil peart had in mind but it there is something symbolic there that it's like this this icon of self-reliance is a is a literal 12 year old
0: i'd like to speed it up a bit and start moving on to yeah. the next section if that's cool with you because yeah. We get the ultimate sort of reveal in the first song of Signals, which begins the third chunk, and my personal favorite chunk of the Rush body of work.
1: Same. I think, I think this one's the best period, personally.
0: So at this point, they're starting to bring in a lot more synthesizers, not just as like an atmospheric or orchestral element, but as like a primary instrument into their sound.
1: Much to the chagrin of their guitarist.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, they're ultimately they worked it out, but
1: yeah, for but yeah,
0: us as listeners, this worked out great for me. I think they sound their best with synthesizers. I think it matches their emotional mood the best of any of their periods. And so, signals begins with subdivisions which is like the origin story of their entire perspective as a band up to this point. It's like, you've gone through all of these records and then we understand why they were making them at this point.
1: That's really the thing that sort of sank in that, that sense of cold war alienation and suburban angst as like, Oh, I was onto something here because I found in interviews that, and it's pretty apparent when you listen to signals back, knowing this signals is a quiet, concept record much in the same way that like duke by genesis is a quiet concept record although where for duke they literally mixed around the position of a bunch of songs so that you don't catch that there's a 30 minute long song suite on the album (laughs) for for signals it charts from suburban alienation to emerging out into the world and finally feeling that that escape for freedom towards the world you know blossoms into this like endless boundless you know sense of discovery with with countdown but right, that's where you right. have the pairing of like analog kid and digital man and as much as as much as those songs are great i think this is pound for pound also better than moving pictures this is a fucking great album if this anyone is my says, favorite rush the-
0: record period like this I is the one say, for me
1: if anyone says that, I can't argue against them. I have others that I th- that are nearer and dearer to me, but this one is like, again, like in every formal capacity, this is great. And then on top of that, the songs are all perfect and sound amazing. Fantastic. But yeah, like you mentioned, you look at subdivisions specifically and it's about feeling alienated from your peers. It's about feeling alienated from your environment and just desiring first more, as like the infantile, like maybe that will fix this. And then over the course of the record, you sort of get that sense that more isn't the question or more isn't the answer. It's things like fulfillment and things like, they also have the beginning inkling that things like a place have value. Mm. That's something that Ayn Rand always struggled with. That For Ayn Rand, it's always the individual, even against, um, the environment itself that there is it's almost anti place. The notion of forging a community and having a sense of community is antipathetic to her ideas. It's like there, there's no reconciliation and they're beginning to have this inkling of like maybe feeling belonging would do something that merely being strong in an artist hasn't. Cause I mean, you get songs like limelight out of them and you get, you'll get a later song like between the wheels out of them where it's like clearly the rat race is not the answer to this. Mm -hmm. This also becomes like a really fascinating thing because they'll repeat the structure of signals later in their career. But yeah, it's they break open this egg uh, and like they finally don't have fantastical songs anymore. Like like anywhere there's like even moving pictures. The previous one had a sci-fi song with um with red barchetta but this is the first time they felt comfortable like or neil peart felt comfortable writing about himself from himself you you see that humanity in there which i think explains you know where some of the goofy ideas would come from
0: right like why someone would be attracted to sci-fi novels and fantasy novels and want to write about that sort of stuff if these felt this degree of alienation and loneliness that's described in subdivisions like why someone would pursue all of those interests. Like it puts all of their work in context and kind of in five minutes dismantles this whole idea that Rush are like this clinical, non-emotional band. Like all of this is coming from an emotional place. And Subdivisions I feel like is like the key that unlocks their whole
1: discography for me. Uh, same that's that's this was one of the first songs that I, I mentioned it like it's the song that helped make them feel like humans and it's weird mm-hmm. because other bands, like you hear yes saying could just john anderson saying straight gibberish that is nonsense but it feels emotionally rich there's something in it and you, i didn't feel that with rush for the longest time until i heard this and then all of a sudden it was like oh, I, I I can hear you now. Like, even going back to these other things, I can see what it is you are trying to say in a way that makes it feel a lot more human.
0: And that, that sort of humanism, I feel like, is the turn of this whole chunk, too. Because, like, the yeah. next record, Grace Under Pressure, is, like, a really harrowing album lyrically. Like, a song like Red Sector A is, like, fucked up. It's crazy that they por- performed that, Live so much, because it's like, yeah, it gives me goosebumps to think about. Like the idea of like having to perform that song night after night is like terrifying to so me.
1: The, the, the super short version of of that song and that response is that Getty's parents um were in concentration camps. They knew each other prior to going into camps, and they went into separate concentration camps, like in in World War II, in Europe. And like his father had to like bribe guards in order to sneak shoes and presents to to this girl that he loved in another camp. And then they both they couldn't find each other after they were liberated and they'd lost a lot of family. And they both happened to emigrate to Canada. And then he tracked her down in Canada and they wound up marrying. So like this profoundly brutal and like really, really like rich love story. And Neil Peart turns it into a set of lyrics of it it matching the whole vibe of the record, which is like post-apocalyptic terror. Like the opening track, distant early warning is the name of a missile defense system in case uh, that North America had in case Russia started a nuclear war. And obviously America was almost more likely to whatever. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) the first one's about, The terror of nuclear Armageddon and specifically from the position that this will be carried out by people who are disconnected from us and don't care Um, that the whole world could die because and again, we get a dose of this with motherfuckers like Donald Trump, where these motherfuckers who live in bunkers and live in the engines of capital could one day decide they're so angsty with one another that every living soul should die. And that's horrifying, obviously. Then you know your next track. You have actually I forget what track two is. I know that Red Sector. image. Oh, after image, which is literally about like just the grief of death and the suddenness of death. Because this was initially written for a um like a sound guy that just just up and died. And you know they're at this point. It's again important to keep in mind they're like 32, like they're yeah. young. Um, mm-hmm. and they had that same experience of you wake up one day and it's like he he's dead. And you're like what? Track three, it's about Getty's real experience familiarly with the Holocaust. And so obviously something's up with you can't maintain the same Ayn Randian politics and address these kinds of specifically terrors about powerlessness. Because that's yeah. the other thing. The Ayn Randian Superman or uh, superhero. I almost said Supermensch, but like Nietzsche would beat the living hell out of uh Ayn Rand if he weren't so sickly all the time and dead. Um, <laughs> both those things get in the way. But that figure can't solve the Holocaust. I mean, that's sort of the anti-Hegelian, anti-dialectical notion of the Holocaust, is that it's this nightmare it's this nightmarish rupture of things that like you can't you can't you know, bootstrap your way through the Holocaust. Likewise, no matter how strong you are, you can't escape death or grief. The only escape from grief is to never have a human connection, which leads you just back to the nightmare of alienation. Even nuclear war in that environment, you can't, there's no, a normal person can't make this not happen. You're just a victim to whether it will or won't, which flies in the face of, Even a song a couple of records ago in Free Will, which talks about how you you shouldn't moan about your lot in life. You should just, you know, choose free will. And then Neil Peart reaching the limit of that notion. It's also around this time period that he starts um, biking a lot, Um, which which almost sounds like an aside, except for the fact that he would bike a lot specifically um, in he went on like an African bike tour that biked from Southern Africa to Northern Africa. And then he went on an Asian bike tour and wound up seeing a lot of very poor communities and meeting the people of these poor communities and asking questions about like, well, what, and learning about things like the long, brutal tale of colonialism and of how World War II enriched the West, but brutalized and destroyed large chunks of the world in a way that like, I didn't know there was fighting in India in World War II until I was an adult. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Like the, these are world wars, but we only talk about the small chunk, and we don't talk about how all these other areas are just like utterly devastated. And he's he gets confronted by that like explicitly through his lived actions, and so right, it's it's in his own words, he's learning to take the heat from the third world man over yeah. this period, and so it's. You start get getting this reckoning at exactly the time you think he's he's becoming a man. He's you know, he's entering his 30s. And all of a sudden, the childish notion of I need to break against mommy and daddy to make myself into my own person, which has a time and place. There is a there is a time when that needs to be what you think about is getting replaced with like, no, I'm again from New World Man from the previous record, you know, you're a citizen of the world and you have to bear the responsibilities that come with that. And like, in case anyone can possibly get it twisted, this is—I get into fights over people, and they're like, they're a libertarian band. I'm like, they were for like four years, and then the people can't let it go. It's been decades. Like, right, right. I'll, he- I'll hear people come swinging saying that, like, no, it's still fine to listen to Morrissey, even though he's explicitly a racist. And they're like, but I won't touch Rush. They liked Ayn Rand once in the '70s, and I'm like, you dork.
0: Right. Yeah. Also, uh, Rush is like, way
1: better than the Smiths. <laughs> I I don't. I'm not going to touch that. I'm right.
0: I'm right. You're right. <laughs> but, but more <laughs> importantly, the idea that a a band that can write the big money are libertarians is a ludicrous
1: yeah. concept. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, and that's where like on Power Windows, you see you see this total reversal where you have the big money, you have territories, you have Marathon uh you have middletown Middletown dreams Dreams.
0: yeah which is like a recapitulation of subdivisions to some extent like
1: yeah and that that one explicitly focuses on the so if subdivisions focused on the alienation middletown dreams focused on um the kinds of things that he arrived at later in the story arc of signals which is like it is specifically the aspiration to not experience these kinds of things that I've talked about before that can lead someone to greatness, and their dawning reckoning that like but but sometimes that burden is too much, and sometimes the things that we think about as spurring people to greatness, if they're too powerful, just crush them I mean, we even get that in uh in between the wheels off of uh off of grace under pressure. Uh, Grace under pressure also is famous for having maybe the worst Rush song of all time in red lenses. You go into great detail about that, and I agree in your in your piece,
0: and I encourage everyone listening to eventually read that. But for the sake of expediency, I think we should yeah.
1: start moving. Yeah, I'm, through I'm the not, rest of it. yeah, yeah. I'm I'm, I'm not going to linger too much on it. Um, thankfully. Um, so, and at that point, it feels like they they know their political angle has shifted they've reached a do- i mean they were listening to a bunch of punk bands and new wave bands they've definitely shifted and then hold your fire just sort of closes it out as um i don't know i'm i'm always i'm always iffy on hold your fire which is weird i know some yeah. people that like this is sort of where they lose me a
0: bit like you'll hear no amy man slander for me like time stands still great tune great great song but as a whole Kind of from here until Counterparts, I'm, like, sort of iffy on Rush. And maybe I just need to spend more time with these records. I know you have a soft spot for (laughs) some of the ones that we've got coming up. But I I feel like there's a bit of, like, listlessness. And at this point, they've been a band for over 20 years. And the synth stuff is kind of starting to run dry. Like, it sort of seems like they've written their best synth songs And that tension between Getty Lee being like, let's go more and more synth, and Alex Lifeson being like, I would like to play guitar, please. (laughs) It's like starting to cause more friction than it should in a productive manner.
1: They've been deliberately pushing for more and more guitar. Um, It's funny, in interviews that you read they always say we're trying to include more guitar and then the record comes out and they're like we fucked up We had that the opposite happened <laughs> we had more synth again like um but uh, and so like th- th- it's funny because you'll get like really strong guitar presence in signals and in grace under pressure where like it'll it shares its space and then something happened within power windows which i think is a perfect record that's one of my top three rush records it's fucking immaculate, but also where the hell is Alex Lifeson a lot of the time? And then yeah, Hold Your Fire feels like the train running off the rails in a certain way. You have some great songs, but, and you also have them getting like weird industrial tones, which I you wouldn't have expected from Rush, um, like the opening of like Mission or Force 10. But uh, yeah, you also get like the the songs start getting a little bit like iffy. And I think part of it is because they from grace under pressure forward they start really trying to hone in on making like perfected pop rock which a lot of a lot of prog bands did again because you see that seated early on some of their earliest influences are these like perfect chunks of pop from like from motown or from you know 60s soul and blues bands and that notion of like wanting that late if you can be laser precise with you know hard rock and laser precise with weird time signatures what's a different kind of really difficult laser precise it's it's the toto thing it's like mm-hmm. yeah you can play you can play dance of eternity but can you play the rosanna shuffle
0: very both are very difficult but I, to play the rosanna shuffle you'd have to do
1: it on a level where you're gonna make money doing it and that is yeah.
0: way harder <laughs>
1: Yeah it's like again it's like it's no knock to either one they're both profoundly difficult but they're difficult in very different ways and if you're an ambitious musician you're like I obviously can shred now I'm in fucking rush um it's like what do you do after you can shred it's like okay and so that's what I think leads into this next period in general which is both that tension of wanting more guitar just in any capacity and then also this perfecting of these these pop influences. So the next one is Presto. And I'm a weirdo. This is again one of my top three rush albums. Hands down.
0: Yeah, you hands are down. you are a
1: strange fellow. I I
0: <laughs> I do not fuck with this record, but I,
1: I, I I'm gonna send you the, the 2013 remaster. I, have, I Jeff cut out a whole thing that I did just about the remasters because he's like Langdon be normal. Um I, was like, I can't <laughs> you didn't hire me to be normal. Um Fair point, <laughs> but the thing that I love about Presto is these are perfect pop rock. Perfect. They ditched all of the synth stuff that clearly wasn't vibing with their headspace from Hold Your Fire. They still have synth as as presence and background. You have a couple tracks like Red Tide, which is driven by piano, electric uh, specifically electric piano. That's a great song. You have Hand Over Fist, which has this continuous like jangle guitar uh and shuffle thing going on. You have like Anagram for Mongo, which has these inexplicably beautiful and profound poetic lines that were literally made out of like word games. But like you have the pass. Like it's just song after song, these are like laser honed perfect pop rock. The big problem for it for a while was the initial mixes of the record, and this is um, this is where the extreme metal listener in me comes out, and my extreme uh, opinions about mixing and mastering. Um, they were mastered with no air, like, mm, yeah. at, at all. This is a
0: recurring problem from here on out, from yeah. what I can tell. Like, Vapor Trails is obviously the one that is, like, most dogged by the loudness war. But yeah. from this point on, it start. there's very little headroom.
1: Yeah, so it's like, it's super sterile, it's super brittle, it's very thin. So one of the big things that bothered people in the CD versus vinyl thing with the whole idea of vinyl being warmer, without getting into the whole science of it, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can Google. But one of the problems that was caused was in the late 80s to early 90s when CDs were becoming the big thing there was also a shift in terms of like mixing and production aesthetic that lended itself more and more to this tight, dry, sterile sound that people began to associate with CDs, even though it was more an era thing. Right. Um, Right. And CDs allow, you can get what, you hear what I'm putting on the disc with greater fidelity, regardless of what it is with a CD. So then you also don't get the added warmth Of the natural distortion of a vinyl. And it sounds old. Like crazy sterile. In a way that people had not heard before. In fact like. We only get things like grunge. Re-emerging. Because people hated how this sounded so much. It's really hard to wrap your head around that. A whole genre (laughs) became big. Because CDs sounded so bad. And so that's where (laughs) I can't. I can't blame someone for hearing. Especially like pre-remastered and remixed versions of presto and being like this is terrible i can't tell if these songs are good because i'm killing myself before i hear them um well i think it's telling that like
0: they also kind of improved along that same style because i feel like dreamline is the song that they would play live from this chunk the most you know, yeah. like going on their their live records, like Dreamline is a constant. And that's like the opening track of Roll the Bones. Roll and that, the Bones. To, that to me is like the best of this era of like, hmm, like the pre grunge. Yeah. But post prog and post synth rush,
1: like Dreamline is the tune, for me at so, least. So what's funny is the band brought up with, with Presto, and this leads into the next one that. They were super frustrated with how the record sounded because they would play those songs live or when they were playing them in the studio and they're playing them with like with Marshall Stacks and stuff, and, you know, with Neil, Neil Peart, like going nuts, beating the living shit out of the drums. And then they hear them on record and they're like, that doesn't that's not that's not how that sounds. That's not how that song mm-hmm. goes. And so the whole thought of their first thought was, well, maybe we'll maybe we were too tight. Maybe we're too tight and we need to start loosening up. And that that's a big thing for for Rush, because um, you would not describe rush as loose at any point prior to this in right. any way. Yeah. Like they literally like one of their big things. And there's there's some videos of Neil Peart doing a drum clinic from the Roll of the Bones tour. They had a pact. That they would only put on record what they could play live with the three of them. Now they allowed themselves to use triggers and samples and stuff in order to get certain things, but one but of the three have to of them
0: trigger the triggers. Yeah, you to do it.
1: Yeah, and they don't have any off-stage people doing the triggers. So, like famously, like Black Sabbath would have an off-stage keyboardist and stuff, mm-hmm. but um, no, for them, they're like Neil Peart has a series of foot triggers on his uh, on his kit that are specifically for like at this point in this song i reach over and i hit this specific pedal once and that starts this patch so that you know because we had three keyboards going and getty can only play one keyboard because he also has to play bass and sing and maybe play another synth with his other foot and all this other sh- so ludicrous shit and they're like okay maybe we're a bit too stiff and so one of the thoughts all the bones and you can hear this a lot is they still have that it still feels very nineties pop rock. Like if you, and I have a huge soft spot for that kind of music. That's like, I, I love Amy, man. It's sort of, I think the secret shame or maybe shame of anyone who like really likes, you know, like hoary, messy rock music is you also hear like a perfect, like, like Natalie and song. And you're like, this is, this is beautiful. It's amazing. I love this. Like I talked to a date from spirit adrift about how torn is a great song. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so obviously the band is thinking that um, because you can hear there's a lot more guitar presence on Roll the Bones. There's a lot more looseness. They're less as metronomically like laser precise, but you still get that huge expansiveness that like that. If you like Rush, you want that from Rush. Like you want that when they played when they would play Dreamline live, they would have a bunch of fog, a bunch of like blue ambient lights creating this deep blue glow and it's, like, deep at night, and there's this just stark blue glowing, and then right as the chorus kicks in, these yellow, like, bright yellow lasers shoot out in what looks like a, like, a fan, cutting through the blue. Like, it feels like you've entered Tron, or something, and that's, right. like, that's how yeah, yeah. you want, you hear it on the record, and you're like, yeah, yeah, it sounds like they're doing that with laser lights at that at that moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, It suffered the same problem of, you know, when you listen to the record, especially the early mixes, it's so tight sonically and it's so thin. Thankfully, later remixes focus specifically on that. So, like, I really suggest if you think the songs are bad, YouTube has the 2013 remasters where they pumped in a lot more air. Like, it sounds like a band playing these songs for both records. Also, on Roll the Bones, you get rap. (laughs)
0: yeah the the rush attempt at rap i i delivered by rapping skeleton that part of it i think is very cool but yeah (laughs) it's it's not like a good rap part as far as rap goes but it's like i respect that rush continued to be like let's try something new and that spirit
1: carries throughout their whole career and i think really carries into their next record as well and it, it it's, it's worth noting that he even said specifically that, like, that wasn't done as a joke. They weren't trying to be cheeky. I obviously did not work, and they never did it again, thank God. Um, but, yeah, he did it because he was like, I as a lyricist, I love Neil Peart. was like, I love hip-hop. Like, these are some brilliant writers. These are young Black artists with a completely different and Latina or Latina artists, sorry, um, that have a completely different perspective than me completely different lived experiences. And yet they're producing such rich and powerful work. Like I wanted to tap into that. And then he does a really bad job and they stopped him. (laughs) But it's, it's really cute because he's like, just like with the ska and reggae, which like we didn't mention it as much, but like signals and uh, grace under pressure have a ton of ska and it, it sounds really good compared to spirit of radio where it sounded terrible. But likewise, they, maybe they would have gotten the hang of rap, but thank God we'll never find out because they were like, no, Neil, you're a white man who had an Ayn Rand phase. You d- no, like we gave you one. You used it. It's done. A weird thing about Roll the Bones specifically is how like tremendously dark it is. Like it goes back to Grace Under Pressure's level of morbidity. Most of the songs are about fear of death, about like. You know, I'm going to be, my psyche is going to be erased and my entire legacy is going to cease to exist. Even Dreamline is about, I feel young now, but I'm realizing I'm going to die someday. Mm -hmm. The whole chorus is like, I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) die.
0: Yeah, at this point, Russia entered their mortality era, you know, like which i feel like every artist gets to eventually where they start writing about the sense of impending death both around them and towards them and that's how i feel about like counterparts like a song like nobody's hero is to me like a song reckoning with like what it means to lose someone and like what that person's legacy means to you like what they leave behind to some extent and like the i don't know yeah to be entirely clear like at this point you're you are going to have way better a clearer line to walk through than i will like 90s and 2000s rush is not my strong spot strong spot well it Um, should be (laughs) i know you feel this way and i i I love and respect that about you so we should talk about counterparts and test for echo
1: yeah i can thankfully uh blaze through this part so obviously at this point rush is super unsure of themselves they've like they're they're like their public star is fading they're a classic
0: rock band at this point
1: yeah and there's a sense of like you know no no band wanted to be a classic rock band they want to be a rock band they want to be you know hip and contemporary and this is a problem that you know every aging artist deals with at a certain point of what happened the classic simpsons thing like suddenly uh what's uh what's hip you ain't it um
0: right i, I got that they, line wrong, i but... used to be with it and what's it changed and i'm not and what i'm with is not it anymore and what <laughs> is it scares and terrifies me it'll happen to <laughs> you you know and yeah and like... behold, it happened to rush you know
1: and so they're looking around and they're like oh we're we're making like pop rock in the 90s when Nirvana's coming up we feel oh my god um and feeling like really out of touch and also the worry that any any artist has really at any point but especially as you get older is this question of legacy because this was around when like rush backlash is also starting to happen in a lot of spaces again because they had some in the 70s but then they out of the blue started to get like hearing things of like primus literally included a bit of them playing yyz live as the opening of frizzle fry their debut record and they're like huh wait what um and Mm -hmm. then like members of Soundgarden are like yeah no we love that band i mean that's part of why you know we love lots of stuff we love hardcore bands we love alternative rock bands but yeah they push us in a certain way and you know these other bands don't push us in that way and that's valuable and they're like what the people and like members of pearl jam were like yeah no we love them they're they're a sick-ass band and they're like what the
0: fuck like right there's this whole generation of kids who like smoke weed for the first time while listening to 2112 that are now making records yeah. of their own
1: and it it being that dirty secret of people that were in the hardcore scene that i mean obviously we've gotten better at at reckoning with these these differing lines of influence now but people don't always like grasp like how territorial some of these spaces were and how like you make you know you like one wrong record and now you're not hip like oh if you like if you like black flag you can't like madonna and now you'd be like well that's stupid she's great like you're dumb um, but right both of them have good songs and bad songs
0: and like yeah, like- have to be a territory war
1: yeah. Like you don't, th- this is really stupid. And it emerges into really dumb things like optimism in critical space where it's like, we don't need a name for pop music can be good. That should just be a thing. Like, don't be a dork. Like just, yeah. just say it's good. Um, <laughs> but this encourages them. And what's really funny. And I, I fixate on this in uh, when writing about it, because I will never not find it funny. They're like, you know, it'll help us rediscover our heavy rock roots the guy who produced power windows and hold your fire (laughs) Um, that that will never not be funny to me it makes no sense um but yeah it's literally the same guy and they it feels like with counterparts for the first time in their whole career they made a sequel to to rush like the debut record like it Mm -hmm. it feels like a band that knows all of the things that they've they've picked up at that point but they're like we want to make and I, I think it faultly faultily gets called a grunge record and i don't think that that's wrong but th- i think that ignores that a lot of the appeal of grunge and this is as someone who literally was like a kid through it but like because of that i didn't have the lens of hipness in a certain way like nirvana and soundgarden feel like they sit right next to the who and jimmy hendrix like it feels like deliberately trying to get back to that sense of cut loose with the guitar
0: right
1: and that's that's what debut was as well
0: have a huge low end and riff as hard as you can is like
1: the vibe and and that that's what counterparts was and this is like again so to close out my my three top rush records it's um power windows presto and then this one because you get you get all the odd time signatures. you get all these tricksy moves you you have one of the most beautiful and excellent instrumentals uh, which is another thing that returns on this record with um, um actually no it returned on roll the bones with the whole gangster of boats thing where's my thing,
0: leave I forget that thing what my alone. Instrumental on this
1: one's called leave that thing alone that's what it is which is just a great great track and you get to hear them flexing you get to hear them riffing on that one like it's I'll sing it, like, beautiful lyrics here. Like, Cold Fire is a great fucking song. No one talks about Cold Fire enough. Love this song. You get Nobody's Hero, which is...
0: Beautiful. Fucking just, incredibly powerful song yeah. to me.
1: And this is in the early 90s, writing a song that's pro-queer, Um, which, again, people have to reckon, a band like Rush that's viewed as this conservative, like, podunk, right-wing band, in the early 90s, making a song about... Queerness and how this per the value of this person isn't even necessarily their queerness or that they suffered from this thing, but like the human richness and impact that they have on people. And that's why pe- different types of people are valuable.
0: Mm-hmm. Is
1: like again, pe- people love to like, oh, but they liked Ayn Rand one time. It's like, shut up, <laughs> I'm gonna fight you. Um, and then this gets one step further on Test for Echo, which. Um, admittedly prior to doing this project this is this is where the project starts paying dividends for me uh in a way that i uh had hoped but i didn't want to tell anyone about um because ultimately i am the most important person um and so this is for me <laughs> but the Ayn Rand attitude <laughs> circles all the way back around i i didn't like test for echo like much at all prior to this i, I got it during that initial like big rush uh, not big 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 phase of the rush um i shouldn't have used their own band name to describe them <laughs> <laughs> that was a fluke um but like i don't know i, I like driven i i have always thought it's a great song that's like that's as weird and knotted as like rusty cage or like slaves and bulldozers or like like really super heavy fucked up sound garden tunes but then you have dog years which sucks.
0: Yeah, or virtuality
1: me, which is about email.
0: Yeah, they start to run into a problem of having less of a clear eye on the modern world than they did yeah. in the 80s and where it's like digital boy meets a digital girl and it's like oh okay like you're starting to actually sound old. But what I do like about this record this is the first record after Neil Peart Rebuilt his economics as a drummer from the ground up. He like completely changed his technique. He started playing traditional grip. He done like the yeah the whole in with Buddy thing, mm-hmm, and started taking lessons with Freddie Gruber and started getting into this much more like ergonomic way of playing drums. Like as much as Neil Peart is like a beloved drummer, even during his best years, technically speaking has a lot of flaws like he's very heavy-handed very on top of the beat and like look that shit is hard to play so i'm not gonna knock him for like how he was able to do it i'm just speaking from like the perspective of someone who went to school for this and like yeah has had a lot of these same impulses trained out of me that it's clear that starting on test for echo he's starting to realize like oh i can still improve in my 40s or in my 50s at this point in his life, he's like, I can get better. I can fix these problems that I haven't addressed because I've been touring for most of my life at this point, you know? And so that to me is incredibly exciting as a musician that from this point forward, he's like tinkering and rebuilding his technique to become a better drummer. It's exciting to me to see a band still be like, we could still get better somewhere. There's some area that we can improve. You
1: know? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I definitely follow that a lot. And I think that there's this is where um the, my very uh discography oriented listening pays dividends. So th- this actually ties into a thing that I think about Neil Young, but pays out in other places, which is that Miles Davis also fits here as well. So Neil Young and Miles Davis both don't have any bad albums. They have albums that you have not learned how to listen to properly. Mm mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and i i mean obviously that 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 can be debated but the point of it is more this teaches you a certain thing which is don't listen to a record just based on do i personally like the songs that are going on but try to figure out what are they attempting to do how you know appreciating something versus just going like do i on gut check think like the songs and you might wind up liking the songs because of that also you might wind up thinking they're terrible um, <laughs> that that can happen too like, I still cringe whenever uh, net boy, net girl. And I'm like, shut up. Just, just shut up. <laughs> like, don't ever write a song like this again. Never write about email. But you have other pieces like um, like Time in Motion, which is a very like creepy King Crimson-y kind of tune. And that, that becomes a flavor that they start folding more and more in towards the tail end of their career. It's just like because the secret about about the band and i bring this up a lot is that like we focus on neil peart as the drummer and the lyricist for good reason we focus on getty as as the singer the this virtuosic bass player he also does synths he does all of them at the same time that's crazy and then everyone treats it like oh and also alex is there but (laughs) he's the guy who pushed them toward like he's the guy who reached out to primus and was like tour with us and they would jam with primus in private every night um after He's the guy who was like, hey, he cites Dream Theater in an interview from 1989. Damn, that's like after their debut came out. That's fucking yes. insane. And he's like, yeah, I heard this band Dream Theater. They clearly like us a lot. Um, I think they need to grow into their own thing, but they have a lot of promise. And then he gets asked about it after Pull Me Under came out. And he's like, I told you, I told you I <laughs> promise. And it's like, this guy has magic ears. Um, he cited again, he cited, Uh, tool around then you know time changes uh time changes many things but
0: also like let's not paint the other three members of tool who are fantastic musicians with the brush of one total shithead you know
1: yeah that's i think that's a fair point and that like especially for a lot of musicians the thing that you're drawn to isn't Isn't Maynard? Even if you like his singing, it's all these other guys and these interesting directions and shapes of music. Where it's like it's not about whether it's hard to play. It's I would never have thought to play that, and now Mm -hmm. I would. And so he he's bringing all these flavors to them. Like he, and it's on this this record that you start seeing again. Like the worship of the Who, I think, is huge on Test for Echo, and that's something that I came to appreciate a lot when listening to it a lot more. Of like that very Pete Townsendy layering of acoustic and electric guitars this creating a very thick wall but of very textured layers of guitar it's it's a very pretty record when you give it time there's large chunks where i like to pretend that no words are happening but (laughs) but um it feels more and more like the band digging into being a rock band again and not not thinking so much like let's Mm -hmm. just Which makes it super heartbreaking that it's at this point that Neil Peart has his horrific family tragedy. Where the short version is in the span of less than a year, his wife gets diagnosed with cancer. Then his daughter, his 19-year-old daughter, dies in a car accident and it's their only child. And then uh, his wife succumbs to that cancer. All in less than a year. And this is right after they finished touring for this record. And he just goes like, I, yeah, I'm, I'm done guys. And they're like, yeah. And for a while, that's all anyone sort of thought like there were in the intervening time, like Getty Lee cut a, a, a solo record, Alex Lifeson cut a solo record. I think he actually cut it just before test for echo, but um, an album called Victor, but they're just sort of like reaching out for other stuff. And it's a while until they um, they get back together.
0: Six years in total until
1: Vapor Trails comes out in 2002. It's worth noting that six years at this point spans basically the entirety of a four year chunk mm-hmm. for the band. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a single span that again, that up to 2112 is two and a half years from their debut to moving pictures is just over six years that's a huge chunk of time for this band and they get back together and i have a lot of qualms with vapor it's obviously the the biggest issue with vapor trails that people bring up a lot is the mix initially was fucking terrible so like any big band they become a plaything for the current in vogue thing about production and mastering and you know that changes through eras
0: And in the 2000s, it was, yeah, absolutely, like, hyper-compressed. Everything needs to be as loud as possible. And it has not aged well, (laughs) that particular aesthetic.
1: They literally brickwalled it to a point where an audio engineer who, like, works for the Grammys as, like, one of their, like... So, like, a big guy in industry wrote a lengthy essay about how he hates the album. And, like, it's he normally only writes about technical stuff. And again, it's one of those things where it'd be like, there's a big guy in the industry named Bob Ludwig and Bob Ludwig. And if you know, if you're enough of a music nerd, that name is like, Oh, you mean the guy who masters like every album. And so it's like these like saints of the industry side. It'd be like one of them coming out of nowhere and being like, fuck your record. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's so inexplicable. They've since remixed it. Like, the band, even shortly after it came out, was like, our record sucks. And they were mad because it was thought for a while that the plates for for mastering it were completely lost and the masters were... And that the issue was in making the plates, the distortion was there, so there was no way to remix it. But they literally hired, like, private investigators to find, like, non-distorted tape.
0: This is such a sad legacy for a record that, like, is about Neil Peart grappling with grief like it sucks that this has to be the thing that this album is remembered by because it's clearly like an extremely personal work and if only we could
1: have heard it for the first time with fresher ears you know thankfully uh you know you have the right one now if it has like a silver cover instead of like a white cover uh they they've fixed it pretty much completely and yeah that's the overriding sense of the record is you get songs like ghost rider a lot of this is drawn from a nonfiction book that he put out around the same time because he went on a, a very lengthy motorcycle journey through all of north and then all of central america and then back again and so a lot of it's about the healing road which can be very cliche until you learn one he literally like motorcycled lengthy road and two it was because of this profound grief it's not cliche if you mean it you know yeah and it's like no it's literal um it's it's not a bad metaphor it's it's his real life yeah you just have like ceiling unlimited all these all these fantastic songs the only major problem with the record are there's one structural end which is this is the longest studio album that they would ever put out and it has like 14 songs 14 or 15 peak cd era you know yeah it's like we're gonna fill the disc and there's there's also the sense of like the band has a sense of band mortality and it's like well maybe mm-hmm. we'll never write and record ever again so and that that hangs over every record from here on out because neil Peart, you know carries that with him and the band has to as a result but they're like yeah let's we wrote the songs we recorded the songs let's put them on and thank God, one benefit to the band is there aren't any hidden B-sides in their entire discography. Um, from their debut forward, if they wrote a song, it got recorded and put out. Which, yeah, it's it, like, there's no vault stuff uh, except live stuff. Yeah, it. Uh, the, the other problem is that this pushes forward into that sound that, that Test for Echo was, was trending towards of, you know, really, like, heavy Who-inspired stuff, but it after that long it re- you get a lot of ear fatigue and they deliberately bought into that very early 2000s like no guitar solo thing and in the remixed version they add in guitar solos which are like faded into the background but the original release didn't even have those so it was just like rush does like a shoegaze record
0: yeah ex- <laughs> that would be interesting if they like really went for it not sure if getty's voice is a good fit for shoegaze but yeah i can't i can't say that i'm not intrigued but (laughs) so that that, this brings us pretty close to snakes and arrows which is like the first contemporary rush record that i listened to i know that you said something along the same lines and like at this point like they're legends in the game like they're they're rush you know they're russian all capital letters you seem more sympathetic to snakes and arrows than I am personally. I don't particularly like this record,
1: but I I get the sense that you do. Is that right? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I think part of that comes with, so I include a bit that to make it 20 studio albums that a lot of people seem to overlook because the band themselves at least classified it as an EP, which is, which is feedback, which comes between vapor trails and this, but I think is very pivotal to, to getting snakes narrows and, Arrows. and I, I think we also need to include it because they did an entire tour off of the back of feedback with, with the r30 tour and even included tracks from feedback on the r30 and snakes and Arrows tour so clearly it wasn't like it wasn't a total fluke it specifically is a cover ep of just eight songs from that specifically from the era of when they were like a garage band or like when they were teens before they were in rush just like what are songs that we play so they have a cover of seven and seven is um from love uh they have a couple like yardbird covers um they cover crossroads, which obviously a billion bands played, but they're clearly drawing from the uh uh the cream version and the most important thing is they feel so joyous on this e p like it bleeds out. This is three friends who clearly not thought they might not ever play together again putting aside all the stress and strain of making new material and expectations and just jamming on songs from their own childhood. And that sense of rush as fans, like the legends going like, let's just straight up, like I, we love the who let's just play some their version of summertime blues with a little bit of the blue cheer heaviness tossed in and things like that. You really get this sense of, Uh, So one of the big themes of this era seems to be that of like celebration. So Vapor Trails is them celebrating their bond because that that's the overriding sense is that we're glad Neil is back. We're glad we can at least still make music. Mm -hmm. Feedback is them reconstituting the mindset before their debut, which also hits at Another critical thing like Bill Bruford has a comment that if you want to sound like me, don't listen to my records. Listen to the records I listened to.
0: Yes, yes, that's so fucking
1: true like with any artist go to the influences and you'll figure it out and you'll be like oh they get this from there they get this from there and i can um and it feels like rush doing that but with themselves and that sense is what leads directly into snakes and arrows which reads almost like them redoing their debut but now Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in a way that like counterparts was them returning to a sense of heft, but there is still a lot of the pop rock there. You can't separate pop rock from counterparts, I don't think. But that returning aggression that had been charting a path since, you know, since presto up to this point of, like, returning guitar and a returning sense of we are a rock band first, I think comes really strong to bear. Like, I, I challenge someone to listen to Far Cry and tell me Far Cry's a bad song. That's a good
0: one. I, I'm not going to knock Far Cry. I just feel like... Again, this is maybe like a a format issue. Is like it is a over an hour long record. Yeah, you know, and that there's just like a certain point where you can tell like these a lot of these songs could have been shorter. A lot of these songs could have had like one less verse and chorus. It's a sort a sort of like aging band bagginess that happens with like Rush are not unique. Yeah, in this manner, so I don't hold it against them personally. I just like grade it on a scale
1: because of that natural problem. But like we also have songs on it like Spindrift, which again brings up so it's worth noting for Spindrift that it's around this time that Alex Lifeson starts getting tapped for guest solos on things like Porcupine Tree. Yes, that's yep, exactly yep. where it's gonna go. So like there there's flex of that like really dark um post-King Crimson-y approach that Steven Wilson has on Spin Drift you have like Armor and Sword that has I think it's Armor and Sword has like a blues guitar intro like a pentatonic blues lick that sounds like like Clapton could have done it but much less racist like you you get all these other it it, it again it feels like if they could make a record in the style of their debut, but in the present sense, which buys me a lot of sympathy in that, uh, which is a fancy way of saying there are songs where I tune out. Yes. Um, But then I'll tune back in because hope is a beautiful instrumental. You have the main monkey business and malignant narcissism, which are just killer. There's a killer instrumentals. Um, And there's, there's a sense of worldliness on the record that lyrically that I think winds up, that is one of the things that moves me a lot like the notion that these lyrics aren't a polemic it feels like it also feels like getty singing for once Mm, as opposed to like it doesn't feel like neil it feels like getty presenting this weary but loving fatherly sense and that
0: the fact that his voice at this point is so much lower than he used yeah. to be,
1: I think really,
0: really helps. And that's like that's the other big turn that on happens on signals is like from that point on, I feel like he's singing in his chest voice rather than his head voice. And it just makes the band like a million times better for me. Yeah. Like and I think there's there's a lot of people that have like real problems with
1: like the, you know, priests of Syrinx voice to put it. Like I'm not, I I obviously love that shit because I love King Diamond and you know Judas Priest, but I also I can't fault people for like, like no, can he sing normal like a regular <laughs> man? Like we should move
0: on to the final.
1: Yeah. Album. So this this actually leads up to their last record, which again, if if Vapor Trails was a celebration of them as a trio, just as, as people and as friends. And then feedback was a celebration of the things that led them to become musicians and to want to be musicians. And snakes and arrows was them paying a loving tribute to a debut that had gone like relatively unrecognized. Then clockwork orange is clockwork reads, angels. Clockwork angels. Fuck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, damn it. Um, reads like them doing all of their career from their debut forward all at once all on one record Mm -hmm. like i and what's weird is when this first came out i didn't like it i'm so stupid (laughs) i read too many books and now my brain doesn't work good i I saw them on this tour and i was like yeah i'm gonna have to sit through the part where they play the entirety of clockwork angels uh with an orchestra to get to the real good part where they admittedly they did play a whole bunch of shit from like power windows and stuff and i got to hear uh neil Peart do a fucking like uh synth rock drum solo (laughs) that shit ruled um yeah
0: no no complaint for me about that but i I get you so for me i just want to say like i only heard this record at all. Last year, after going through their entire discography and getting to it, I was like, oh, they're closing the book. This is the last chapter. And like, it feels like that when you're listening to it. It's like, here's everything we've learned up until this point. Here's what you've gone through listening to it with us. And now we're tying it all together and giving you this actual sense of finality and then
1: closing the book. I mean, you even get, th- this is where the thing about Signals came up. The The tale of Clockwork Angels is, again, the tale, just like in Signals, is the tale of Neil Peart's maturity, where you have him in the opening song leaving the garden that, that the character works in. Because it's also, it, funnily enough, this is their first concept album that has a story. It's um, like front to back concept record. Yeah, yeah you're right. Uh, which is, I, I find really funny that they they waited until the last one to finally do a real concept album. Um, but yeah, you have just like in Subdivisions, it's about his alienation and this sense of purposelessness, even though he's relatively well off. But the thing is, in Clockwork Angels, they have him count, become this like strident, self-reliant, you know. Um, there is a character called the Watchmaker, who's clearly like a stand-in for the Christian God, as well as for... Um, like communist authoritarianism. And he's like, fuck that. I'm, I'm my own man. So he goes and joins up with anarchists and Neil Peart's lyrics in the song, the anarchist, when he meets up with them, does not exactly paint them. Well, you have things like the lenses inside of me that paint the world black, the pools of poison, the crimson mist, the scarlet mist that spills over into rage, Um, a missing piece inside of me that grows around me like a cage, like, He doesn't paint that view very positively in a way that like, again, if if you're thought of him as he's he's this libertarian Ayn Randian dick, and then you look at that, it's like, oh, oh, shit, like, oh, he changed. Um, But yeah, the, the rest of the narrative is more or less this character following out like, okay, what happened in the rest of my life where he encounters one thought after another and pairs them against each other? and doesn't so much find fault with all of them in that like they're all shitty because he specifically also has like well the anarchist feels this way because they have certain desires that are constrained by the society that they can't enact and that wound them that they can't do and their loss is a real loss the fact that they're acting from that loss is perhaps infantile but that that loss that generated it is real but likewise The Watchmaker has made a better and more efficacious society. It is more stable and less warlike. People are generally happier and live longer. I can't be really mad at that either. Like, he self-complicates with this notion of, like, worldly understanding that, like, this is where these come from. So as much as you're getting this musical sense of going through the whirlwind of the band's life, of having, like, near the beginning you have brought up to believe which is a stupid heavy track i love that song but it then builds into these you know wild prog rock things with flighty time signatures you get bits that feel like entre new finally again with some of mm-hmm. the string oriented mm-hmm. stuff you even get the the same string player uh from uh losing it off of um
0: well, off signals, of signals. Right? Yeah. yeah
1: showing up again to have another violin solo on a song Like you're saying, like it, the band kept insisting this isn't our last record. But if you look at Neil Peart interviews at the time, it was very apparent that he wrote this as this is my farewell. And that really hits like impossibly hard when you get to the garden. Yeah. That's the last song on the album. It is. uh, So I was listening to that on loop as I was finishing off this last chunk and that you just love to ra- torture ra- yourself don't you <laughs> yes grappling <laughs> <laughs> with this is what made it so hard to write this those lyrics this is before he died obviously but that's a man who's writing his farewell not just of this band but like i'm not coming back in any capacity this is me saying goodbye and like i love you but i'm gone it's lyrically it's a stark rebuke against Every negative stereotype about Rush. It promotes singularly that sense of community that so evaded them early on and so provided that alienation that pushed them, and saying, like, nothing matters more than loving and being loved, and the reality and toughness of real love and the labor that goes into that, because love is like tending a garden. He actually takes this from Voltaire. This is apart from Candide, where Candide, the main character, after hearing about ways of living his life from a bunch of different philosophers goes, that's great. But at the end of the day, someone has to tend the garden Mm -hmm. and goes back and literally just goes, works. It works at a fruit garden, which of course the main character from clockwork angels also works at. Yeah. That sense of communal oriented love, which fits with, as he described later in his life, his shifting, politics as like a bleeding heart libertarian or he described himself as a left libertarian which is um basically Basically exactly in fact prior to ayn rand the term libertarian in political space even in the west meant an anarchist she's the one who pushed it towards meaning like basically a right wing piece of shit but before like emma goldman called herself uh, a libertarian not an anarchist but musically it also has this there's a heft to Getty's voice and a weight to the music that feels like even the band, as they were verbally denying it, is saying, this is the end. Yeah. You even get the parallel structural bit in that the first song they wrote and recorded together is called Garden Road. Hmm. And then the very last song on their very last studio record is The Garden. And again, I'm not sure if that's deliberate or not, but it, it, it's so perfect that it became no surprise that the band never recorded anything after this. Like they went on a bunch of world, they went on two world tours after this and they cut live records from both, but this was like the the end. I'm finding myself
0: surprisingly overwhelmed by emotions from talking about a record and not listening to it.
1: I was crying as I was finishing. Like, I still can't listen to that song or think too hard about it without without getting really, really fucked up. Because again, I did, I did this as a eulogy. That's the other thing is like, that weight that, like, the garden and that sense doesn't just become a goodbye to the record. It's also a goodbye to Neil. Yeah.
0: It's a goodbye to Neil. It's a goodbye to the band. It is also, I think, a goodbye to the idea of Rush fandom as a reciprocal relationship, you know? Yeah. Like the idea that it's not just something that the fans have privately but it's something that we can all go to a concert and experience collectively. And the idea that there are two world tours, clearly, lots of people, lots of concerts, but at the end of that, that's it. And we both, as well as everyone listening, now live in a world where that does not exist. That is not a possibility anymore. And so the last document we have of what all of this meant of what all of this means and will continue to mean is this song. So of course we get overwhelmed because it, it forces us to not reckon just with that song, but with all of the, the wider range of emotions that have come to us up until this point, right? Like this whole range of experiences that we've had over the course of this podcast, talking about, we're faced with a record of growth, a record of a, intellectual like an intellectual person and an artistic person growing as a human being over the course of 40 years and then at a certain point everyone who's not his age has to go on and face the the next however many years not alone but on their own terms not with the same degree of force We, We we don't have this person to continue laying out the track in front of us
1: We have to do it ourselves. It feels not unlike, as as someone who's gone through this, it feels not unlike a parent dying, where there's something about that as like a meta structural element because they pre exist your birth. Like you come into a world where they already exist and they make the rules because they're your parent or they're this like big archetypal group. And Mm -hmm. then when they go, it's this like, you know, on paper that you're going to inherit these things and you're also going to inherit that structure and those senses of responsibility and you know that legacy is a real thing that you think about because you have a history class you know you have great grandparents all that kind of stuff but when it suddenly becomes it's not this abstract thing anymore it's not a thing in a history book or a thing that you hear about and you know like you have to think about the legacy of george washington or something it's like it's your own father no one remembers him but you no one can meet him ever again only through what you do and stories you tell or this group no one can see them again they're not going to make anything new it's set in stone and this thing that you felt now can't no one can enter it ever again
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyone who
1: comes in now comes into a different kind of thing it's not that it's not real and it's not that it's not valuable, but it's not the same as seeing Rush, even on the Snakes Narrows tour where, you know, that they're a living, breathing band. And especially for art, art that you care about and art that moves you a lot, that's a, that's a really heavy thing.
0: Being able to watch someone grow up in music and in, in their lyrics over the course of four decades and then understanding that anything else that happens is now up to us, you know, like Russia's legacy, the iterations on their material, the iterations on their ideas are now like our responsibility. It's heavy. It's really fucking heavy. We've been going for a long time. I don't regret a second of it. And I'm really glad that you have put in the work to put all of this in context, because like, it's taken a year of both of our lives, and I would assume any other Rush fan listening, to truly like, grapple with the fact that there will not be another Rush record, and that the man responsible for, at the very least, 33% of what makes them great is not going to be able to contribute to music at all, because he no longer is with us. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm really appreciative of your personal effort in pointing, like, you show that there's a reason to care. Not just about, like, moving pictures or 2112, but about the body of this work. And that if we take it all in context, there's not just something to learn about, like, why this band was good or bad, but something about, like, why it is good to live, because you can see in this what it means to grow as a human being, what it means to learn that maybe the ideas you held when you were 20 are not good ideas in your thirties. Yeah. That's just like a, it's extremely valuable. I feel like this is like music criticism at its highest level. So th- I'm I'm really fucking appreciative of it. <laughs> Sorry that, if I'm
1: that means that means a shit that means a shitload to me because like I respect the shit out of like you personally, um, and a lot of the work that you've done. Like, uh, yeah, that's I I I was I was walking in a daze when you were like, "Do you want to talk about this on the podcast?" And I was like, "Do I? want What do I?" Um, it felt similar to when you reached out to me and we like, "Do you want to write?" A thing about oceanic for invisible and i was like i uh, mm, um it's funny because it obviously this kind of thing is a lot of work but i this is what i love to do partly because i love this band Mm -hmm. like this is also what makes like this is the thing that moves i'm listening to death metal is like that that sense of like but But why do we fucking care? Like at the end of the day, these are records. These are bands. These are songs. It's And I get frustrated a lot. Hopefully the good kind of frustrated that like punk and hip hop and soul music and jazz, all these things get these great, great pieces that engage with that. Like, why do we care? What's like, and we don't question it and we shouldn't to be fair. Like there's a human thing beating within Motown music. Um, There's a human thing within jazz and within great hip hop and and we know that and that's that drove the creation of punk and those stories have a right to be told, they will continue to be told and that's great. But then feeling like this music that moved me in the same ways that is so meaningful to me and how I navigated my world and my life didn't and in a lot of senses still doesn't have that. There's a lot of writing about, well, here's where they changed time signature or like they changed their producer here. But I'm like, that's not, like who, who fucking cares? Like that's not. That sort of stuff does not mean very much. And
0: you've done a beautiful job of reifying the humanity of Rush, the humanism of Rush. And in doing so, I think, grant unneeded legitimacy to the intense dedication that people have had to this band for a very long time i think it's time that we should start wrapping this up and give our listeners (laughs) a chance to check out these records on their own time but i i just want to say thank you for both like talking to me today and also for putting in the hours and hours and months, as you describe it, of work to put this band's incredible work in context. So Langdon, a terrific conversation. Thank you so much. No, thank you. (laughs) Thank you again for listening. And thank you, Langdon, for joining me. You can find Langdon's writing on invisibleoranges.com, and duck. You can find more episodes of this show on the Apple Podcast app, or you can grab the RSS feed directory from soundcloud.com slash sounds Feel free to email me at landreformsband at gmail.com. See you next week.